Good evening, you're all listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney, here with our friend, the Game King himself, the illustrious Sean Sands. Hey, hello. We also welcome back Computer Gaming World Editor-in-Chief, Jeff Green. Hello. And finally, we have GamesBeat's ancient historian, Rowan Kaiser. Resources exist to be consumed, and consumed they will be, if not by this generation, then by some future. Perfect. By what right does this forgotten future seek to deny us our birthright? None, I say. Let us take what is ours, chew, and eat our fill. The epitaph for our times, <laughs> Nobutake Morgan. <laughs> you know, I gotta say, I haven't been introduced by the job I haven't had in 11 years. In 11 years. <laughs> but I think it's relevant here. It felt here. so good. It felt so good to hear that. I'm just gonna get new business cards and just say Editor-in-Chief of Computer Gaming World. Well, I think <laughs> we're gonna start, the, we're gonna do the Kickstarter. And yeah. like we'll just we'll we'll bring it back, uh, but I think it's relevant because per uh, Rowan's introduction, we are journeying back to a better time in games in games media, uh, perhaps the best time in games, the year nineteen ninety nine. Uh, Rowan, I know that you and I have had this show circled on our calendar for for some time. Uh, 1999's almost impossibly big and pivotal to cover and summarize easily. Uh, nevertheless, let's start by trying and try to identify, like, what are some of the major threads of that year as you look back across it? So, um, I did some, like, longer intros to, I believe, our 97 and our 93 shows that kind of talked about the, the technological changes that went on in the 90s. But when you look at this year, it's just so, like, bafflingly filled with famously great games that, mm -hmm. like, something was going on here. Um, and trying to pin that down, what I think that I've sort of figured is that the, the technological and social changes that I talked about, like, the technological changes, um, CD storage and, like, Super VGA and better graphics uh, dramatically changed games in a way that, like... Uh, helped start knocking out older genres. You also have things like uh, full adaptation of the mouse and DualShock sticks on console. Um, mouse is already fully d integrated by now. DualShock will come in the next year when the PlayStation 2 gets released. And then the economic aspects like corporate consolidation and increasing connections between PC and console games. Um, so the mid-90s especially are this kind of era of chaos where most of the genres that we know and care about um, either get totally reformed like Western RPGs do or like destroyed and come back or totally new things appear like first-person shooters or real-time strategy games are both things that got started in the early 90s and really kick into gear in the late 90s. So I think in 1999, the main reason that you have all of these games uh, – become so huge is that uh the that chaos has kind of consolidated or solidified just enough that what's new the thing that has become gaming in the past 20 years has, has all these games become kind of in ideal form um so i i looked at this uh, the list that I made, and I found that you end up with arguably in just this one year, three of the best multiplayer shooters ever, mm -hmm. the best conventional adventure game ever, two of 
the best weird adventure games ever, two of the best RTSs, again, one conventional and one more experimental, arguably the best fantasy strategy game, arguably two of the best city builders, arguably the best 4X game, Tycoon game, Dungeon Keeper-like, which, um, spoiler alert, is Dungeon Keeper 2, um, <laughs> arguably the best action and strategic simulation sports games, uh, Arguably best Western RPG, best horror game, best space game, best immersive sim, and best tactics game, and a bunch of other games that don't really fit into easy things like that. So this year is ridiculous. Um, and, you know, when you look at the best years ever that weren't in the 90s, years like 2007 or 2012, you have similar kind of chaos leading into consolidation. Um, like 2007, the big thing that makes that year stand out to people are accessible console-based first-person shooters. Like, the DualShock thing has become, uh, or DualStick thing has become so integrated that now you can have games like Bioshock and Portal and so on appear on console, which, you know, blows people's minds. In 2012, it's digital distribution. That allows for, like, the big-ass games like XCOM and Mass Effect 3 to be on the same scale, like, in terms of how people talk about and think about and write about them as smaller or medium-sized games like Journey or The Walking Dead or Crusader Kings 2. So, yeah, this is this is my grand theory of 1999, is that there's a whole bunch of chaos. Oh, another huge thing is the internet, because one of the yes. chief games we're going to be talking about is yep. a mod. Um, so, yeah, the, the full internet integration added on to all these things. It's, it's going to be a mess, but we're going to have fun until we actually have to decide between the top two strategy games. So the thing that sucked about 1999 was that I had to go to school <laughs> um, and I didn't have this job yet. And I am curious, uh, you know, Jeff, when you sort of look back at this year, I'm curious, did it stand out at the time as being a special moment in games? Did the sort of impermanence or fragility of that moment uh did, did it also feel that way at the time or does that just be only become clear in retrospect i i think i mean obviously it's extremely clear in retrospect but i think even at the time we knew it was a special era that started really before 99 i mean i don't know how far you back uh it exactly goes but certainly 98 because 98 is when you have half-life Grim Fandango, but you know, plenty of other amazing games. So I think we knew we were living in, in quite a golden age at that time. And certainly I remember at CGW, you know, that was the heyday of that magazine, at least in terms of page count. We were putting out like literally 500 page issues at that time. And we would have feature stories that were like 60 pages long on strategy games coming out that year. So there was just an overwhelming glut of games um and you know quite a number of awesome ones it wasn't tons of shovelware you know it was so yeah i mean i think i think we did know yeah i was finalizing the research for the list i came up with like i went to computer gaming world's uh, best of the year and uh there was definitely an introduction paragraph that was like in what was an extremely good year for games and then as jeff says like the years leading up to this are really good i would say like from 93 until 99 you have all these years where you start seeing these games that become kind of the ideal forms of their genres appear um but 99 kind of peaks in qu quantity if not necessarily quality uh 
I, I think there was maybe more freedom too, or there was more freedom or ability to fail and not have it be catastrophic. You know, the budgets were so much smaller. You could have like a B grade or C grade level game and still find success. Um, you know, not everything was as high stakes as they are now. I'm curious, um, Jeff, like to that point, when you look at this list, are there games that sort of fit that description where you're like, I think this one kind of exists because that economic opportunity existed because that scale existed. Right. Well, when I was, you know, thinking about the games that were at the top of my list at the time, which include Heroes of Might Magic 3, you know, I was wondering even just today, like, if that game came out now, would it could it have been as huge as it was then? Because it was a big deal back then. And now I feel, I could be wrong, but I sort of feel like if it came out now, it would be an indie game. Or it would be, uh, you know, it wouldn't be a big time release. You wouldn't get Microsoft putting out Heroes of Might and Magic. I know they didn't make it, but you wouldn't get them, a company that big, putting it out and making a big deal about it. That's, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, um, like an equivalent to that these days would be Endless Legend, which, like, in our circles, we, we all know about, and it's done well enough that the Endless people are still making games, but you're not seeing that be a giant, you know, on everybody's end-of-the-year list type of thing. Right. Right. Because it seems like that's sort of all we have now, right? It's, it's AAA and indie. There's hardly an in-between. There's hardly... A, a place where, uh, you know, a, a medium-sized team with a medium-sized budget can put something out and have medium-sized success and have that actually be good enough. Except maybe strategy. Like, as I was thinking about, like, when, when you were giving the Heroes of Mind Magic example, um, you know, we just were talking about Age of Wonders Planetfall uh, on the yeah. last show. Like, this might be one of the last remaining spaces where games at that scale can, like, find an audience. But at the same time, I think you're right that <clears throat> in part because gaming overall was kind of a smaller niche back then, particularly PC gaming, I think a Heroes of Might and Magic game was an event and an attraction, it meant something to your generalist PC gamer in 1999 in a way that it absolutely would not today, right? Like, the, the, like a new Age of Wonders game does not generate anywhere like that kind of attention, even if maybe it attracts similar numbers of players or even more than in the past. Uh, it's, it's just its importance in the grand scheme of what games have become has immensely shrunk another thing is that i think that um what we consider kind of the default of a big game got really really consolidated in the 2000s to the point where it was like it's either a giant open world uh, thing or maybe a super cinematic rpg or most likely it's like a you know eight to twelve hour action adventure console game and then you look at this list and what even fits that kind of model? Um, like Legacy of Kane, Soul Reaver, Siphon Filter. Like I remember seeing lots of commercials for Siphon Filter. That might have become the model, but you don't think about like Siphon Filter dominating like Call of Duty or Assassin's Creed or Red Dead Redemption or whatever would. Um, it's there. There was just a lot more chaos in like what what do the people want here? Right. I mean, I guess you know we really have to 
realize or just remind ourselves it was a totally different world, right? I mean, yes. it was just completely different. There, there weren't any games like Red Dead Redemption at that time because gaming really wasn't that big. You know, they weren't, they weren't, there wasn't this humongous cultural conversation around all the biggest video games at the time. Certainly there was, you know, there was uh, the community and there was, I don't know, what were we doing at the time online? Was it like CompuServe and things like that? <laughs> so, so there, was, there was online talk, but there was nothing like today. There was no Twitch, there was no Twitter, you know, so games didn't really exist and didn't like take up so much air in the room the way Wait. games do now. Which I think actually makes the whole situation a little more special to me in a, in a way and really makes 99 stand out even more because, I mean, you take a look at the list of games that we pulled together and I think it's even more impressive in the sense of context of this would be a huge impressive year right now if you had sort of this magnitude of these degree of quality games in 2019. Um, but that would be in comparison to what literally thousands and thousands of potential games that you could get at any point. The the number, the sheer percentage of games that hit this magnitude on this list versus the total number of games that existed in the year 99 makes it even more impressive for me because you had to have that ability to put a game in store shelves and put it on boxes and get all the, you know, get all the, you know, the, the actual retail and the logistics and all the different things that go into that um, put together in a way that you don't have to now for every game, right? You can put together something like a Heroes of Might and Magic sort of game put it out on steam put it out on epic maybe you know even get the attention of uh, a microsoft or a playstation if it's it's a big enough deal um and not have that huge infrastructure and support right the the interesting thing to me is how many amazing games came out and not only were awesome games but also checked all the boxes to be able to be games in the first place which was mm -hmm. again a lot a lot harder 20 years ago great point yep Another interesting thing about this, as I look at it again, is that um, two of the series that would come to define, like, what is a big game are on here. Uh, oh, wait, I misread. That's Gran Turismo, not Gra Grand Theft Auto. Uh, whatever. But, you know, we're... we're uh, just <laughs> the point stands. <laughs> I, 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 I'm not going to argue again. It's, <laughs> yeah, actually, GTA yeah, there 2 probably there. was. No, I mean, yeah. it's only up to two at that point. Right. So we're yeah. a couple of years away from GTA 3, which is the yeah. one that blows the doors off. And we also right. have Medal of Honor, which in a few years mm -hmm. is going to become the game that like instigates the military shooter glut that we get throughout the 2000s and still have to this day. Um, so, yeah, like all these things are like the potential is right there. It's just like they're all on the same playing field. It's all it's all relatively level. You don't know. You would not say in 1999 which one of these is going to become the game that everyone is talking about when it gets its sequel. Right. And and also there was like still like quite a, a, a nerdy, um, you know, uh, it, it was a little, you could get made fun of for playing some of these games that are on the list. Sure. I mean, I remember having Heroes of Might and Magic on my screen at times and having people from other magazines, like the console magazines, walking by and laughing at it, you know, because it just looks like, you know, because it looks so cheesy, cartoony uh, uh, at uh, at a glance. So there was also sort of that aspect, too, that um, not everything was as polished looking, um, though some of that is retrospect, right? Um, like, for example, EverQuest, which came out that year. 
I remember at the time looked like the most amazing, immersive, realistic yep. graphics I'd ever seen. And of course, now it looks horrendous when you look at it now. I think it was also the one of the very first major games that actually required a 3D card, as I as I recall. Like that made it that made it stand out as this huge sort of visual triumph that was only the realm of those you know with with enough money and enough horsepower to actually run it. Um, no, I was just I was just going to say that actually puts me in mind of something else that maybe is less apparent now than it was at the time, which is how palpable your budget as a gamer mm. and your access to tech infrastructure was in your experience of gaming versus like what you were what some of your friends were up to or what you're reading about in magazines, right? I remember like 1999 is also a year where the nature of some of my friendships change because a bunch of my friends get super into EverQuest and they start like one guy had a cable modem connection. Everyone else was on dial up. So everyone like basically moves into this dude's house for a year and just and like and everyone's in high school and like his mom was just like, yeah, it's cool. Like you kids aren't out doing drugs. So this is fine. Uh, so Everyone, like, is playing on that connection and playing a ton of EverQuest whenever they can, but it's a system hog at the time. It is better with a stronger connection. Uh, to me, it was a little too boring. My impression of EverQuest remains um, slowly pulling enemies and waiting for them to just just basically spawn capping monsters until you grew a long, snowy white beard. Uh, and and yeah, level up. Camp checks. Remember camp checks. Uh, yes. Yeah, um, and, and meditating. You had to sit down. Put that like, stupid book up in the middle of the screen and just yeah. look at it. <laughs> I, yeah, we, we. I was talking about that with a couple people. We were playing WoW Classic the other day, which is a whole other discussion. But uh, we were talking about like that. That kind of game design is. It's so mind-boggling now that that we that it they did it and that we all put up with it that you know in everquest you, if you're a magic user you have a pool of mana like every game but when you ran out you had to fucking sit down in the game <laughs> like you said pull up this meditation book and sit there for not seconds like minutes <laughs> minutes yep. like what was that? What you know? See, that's I mean, amazing because that was yeah. like making literal the stuff that every pen and paper RPG group basically started cheating on, like right and left. Right? It was well, no, a video game can enforce this rule. You have to meditate to get your spells back. <laughs> yeah. And meanwhile, like every D and D session I ever played in was like, "Hey, did you uh, memorize your spells for today?" And everyone just sort of looks guiltily and is like, "Yeah, I totally did." It, I just <laughs> weird. That. I memorized the spell, which is perfect for this situation, and isn't super like isn't a normal utility spell. But yeah, uh, I memorized that one a day. So yeah, I've got Tenzer's floating disc. What of it? You know, one other sort of not to not to sort of over broaden. We can tighten back up. But 1999, like just from a media year as well. Um, I mean, it, it was a weirdly special year, and and because this context kind of fits into it. Like I, I, I know we're not going there, but like you look at the movies and that came out that year as well. Everything from the matrix to office space to God galaxy quest, the iron giant, uh, Magnolia fight club. And the reason I bring that up is because I think there's this really interesting sort of 
concurrence that happens between those two, the, the, the sort of same peer groups that were playing these games. Like it was, it was sort of this first ideal modern year for what has sort of become, I think the, the culture of, of, the technology culture right now there's there's just it was sort of the if i had to pick a year where something shifted and a gear moved in you know down into the next gear up that became what we think of as the call of duty you know modern culture of games and media it was sort of 99 across the board it wasn't just in games is all i'm saying if, if you've been following any TV people on Twitter the last couple of weeks, they're all doing 20th anniversaries of like the West Wing, Freaks and Geeks, Spaced, these other things that you know, Spaced, yeah. Oh my god, is that the idea of culture or became the idea of culture? And I think some of that is like this is when the internet becomes a thing just for communicating. So yeah. it's not just that you like Spaced; it's that it's a lot easier to find Spaced people or you know, more likely freaks and geeks or the West Wing because American. But um, I think there's this also has to do with the uh, corporate consolidation where the 90s, you know, mm. these regulations get relaxed and this leads to kind of a burst of creativity that eventually consolidates into a lack of creativity that we start yeah. to see throughout the 2000s. Yeah. Yeah, it is striking looking at this list uh, how much more like if you think about it, the the fight that's happening in PC gaming at this time is who is going to who's going to sell the most video cards is one of the major fights in 1999, mm -hmm. which is really distinct from a a true platform battle, right? Like every game is still also making a case for man, this will really put your 3D card you know to work. This will, this really this will justify. Uh, an upgrade for your for your 3D card, but that's still really different from having a bunch of first party giants sort of locking down studios and siloing off their wares. Which I think is kind of the story of the 2000s, right? Is that uh, things are like things that would have been PC games end up being sort of shoehorned into the Xbox, and they have kind of a weird shit. Like I, I'm thinking of the Deus Ex sequel there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, like yep. in particular, but Knights of the Old Republic. Mm. Yeah. Warwind. Yeah, and, and so like I, I think about this particular moment and that isn't happening. In fact, this this list is actually a little weird to me because it seems, even for that time, pretty light on like major first party platform selling stuff, right? Like this is kind of uh the beautiful let a thousand flowers bloom uh right. era in in games and yeah. that era ends yeah and very it, much so yeah I, there's, I think... there's a couple of these with the dreamcast here we have sonic adventure primarily but yes it's it's like in the next two years when the ps2 and xbox and gamecube come that people really start locking that down right i think wasn't this also the year of the n64 or, or do i have that wrong Was it, that the, year of the year of the n64 <laughs> Because I mean, yes, it's it's around here, um, it, but it's I think it's in the middle of its lifespan. Oh, okay. My my console ignorance. No, but, I'm looking. I'm looking um, that up. But, uh, yeah, it's '96 is when that comes out. '96. Okay, right. But it, it, you know that was a really good point that you know there weren't there just weren't these kind of gigantic uh, marquee games at that at that point. There were big games. There were very popular games, but there was nothing that was like so dominant that it just that that's all everybody talked about. You didn't have 
uh, you didn't have the companies at the time weren't sort of jockeying and switching around their release dates because other games were coming out at the, sa- at the same time. Like, that's something that happens all the time now. You know, well, we can't release during this time because Borderlands 3 is coming out or Red Dead Redemption 2 is coming out. It's all that, that kind of market ring that, that's a whole part of it now. Actually, I'm, I, that, that raises a good question because I'm dealing with a lot of this at work right now. I'm sure Rowan is as well. Uh, it is that season where... There are certain PR campaigns in full swing, and it's not just people trying to get you to write about their game, but it's also things like, uh, for weeks now, one of the things, one of the stories is like getting ready for Breakpoint. Uh, not necessarily it's like mm-hmm. the highest priority item on my list, but just in terms of, oh, this is a thing we need to circle on our calendar. Ubisoft is making sure everyone's you know lined up and uh, you know knows who the reviewers are going to be on that assignment. Uh, and, and I am curious, this is kind of the norm for a lot of what we now call like the AAA games, right? Like, first of all, can you even get code? Uh, Borderlands, certain, Borderlands 3 was certainly kind of controlled access to code. But there was kind of this, I think, one of the other ways this is distinct is that in terms of smaller releases, everyone is dealing with the same frustrating phenomenon of it is kind of a nonstop flood trying to distinguish yourself in a glutted market. And then for the major like tentpole releases, everyone tries to sort of own their section of the calendar and try to stake it out, you know, ages in advance. They sort of go through a pretty uh, predictable and, and pre-planned uh, PR campaign. And I'm curious, working in the media side back then, was anyone taking it that seriously? Were publishers sort of working these angles that hard? Uh, was there was there this sense of competition? The the competition that that I was very much keyed into and was aware of was real really just about magazine covers. That was the you know that was the uh, the white whale for all the game companies. If you could if you could get the cover, you were gold. I mean, every magazine only had twelve a year, right? So that's not very many. When you look at how many games came out in '99, and only 12 of them got to be on a magazine cover, it was a big decision that that the editors had to make every single month. Um, and so there was a lot of fighting, and there was a lot of fighting between the magazines. I mean, we had this just intense rivalry with PC Gamer at the time. I mean, now all of us old editor in chiefs from that time are all friends and laugh about it, but it wasn't funny at the time. Like we were like freaking ruthless with each other. Um, and so that's what I remember. But in terms of the, you know, the game coverage, like as we've been saying, you know, there was basically no internet or web or any of that. So, you know, we just had our pages to fill and we had a lot of them and um, we had a month to write these things. You know, the, the, the reviews weren't coming out on day one. So it was really just a whole different thing, right? We weren't pre- pressured to finish it by release day. Like none of that even existed back then. I think the year that really changed this, at least on the consumer level, was because there was always like a push to have the games out at Christmas. But in 2001, you had uh, the it was the last week of November, I think, and the GameCube and the Xbox with Halo came out that week, and Sony decided they were going to compete with that by putting out Metal Gear Solid 2. So that was like the most ridiculous week I've ever seen in video games. And that's just like, okay, now we see, you know, how these people are putting out their battle lines. So one of the other things that I think is happening this year, though, is that um, 
to me, it's really interesting. Let's start with a small area, like uh, adventure games, right? It is interesting to me that Gabriel Knight 3 comes out the same year as The Longest Journey. Um, and admittedly, it, it might be that Ga- like Gabriel Knight 3 didn't get a good reception at the time. Uh, certainly in the way it looks, it is aged terribly. And then Old Man Murray, uh, it, it, was it was it Eric Wolpaw? Oh my God. Uh, who just yeah. basically yeah, yeah, buried yeah, yeah, that yeah. game. Um, on, yeah, the cat mustache. Yeah. <laughs> uh, pretty much uh, just, just demolished that game's reputation. But I think the, the bigger misstep with, with Gabriel Knight 3 is uh, Sierra and Jane Jensen have this are trying to figure out what does a Gabriel Knight in 1999 look like? How does this, how does this, mm-hmm. how do you make this look like a modern PC game? And their solution is to create a 3D engine for Gabriel Knight game, etc. cetera. Uh, and then The Longest Journey is this interesting counterexample because this thing has become a, not only sort of a genre-defining uh, all-time great, but a truly beloved game uh, that, like, successive generations of players have discovered is people are like, Oh, you like adventure games. You got to play the longest journey. And I think the, the divergent fates of these two games also indicate something that is happening here, which is that, and I think we talked a little bit about this, like with the 1998 show, uh, Rowan last year, but like, this is one of those eras where I don't know if it was clear at the time, but it definitely like when you consider two games like that, it definitely becomes a moment where while some of you are going to advance to the next round of computer <laughs> gaming, some of you will join us in the future and some of you will not. Some of you don't have a place in where games are headed or at least not at this particular moment. Things will come back around and retro aesthetics will, will, will change the game yet again, uh, which is why we get Wajidai games uh, ages later sort of becoming you know, a, a leading a renaissance of old school adventure games. But I think at this moment, 1999, you have a lot of people trying to figure out what does a game in this genre look like as we move increasingly into this three, 3D era and budgets are increasing. You know, one thing interesting thing about that is that at, at the time, that you never would have taken the bet that it would be the longest journey of the two. Like that game, or that, it, or that you know, decades later, it would be beloved and remembered. When that game first came in from Funcom was the company who made it. It was just like another, it felt like another also ran adventure game at the time. I mean, I'm sure we reviewed it. Well, I can't remember what we gave it, but it was not a big deal release at all. Um, Whereas Gabriel Knight was the third one in a very popular series from a huge at the time game company. So it was a real reversal of fortune there. Yeah. I never even really thought about those two games together, but it's kind of remarkable. Well, one of the things to note here is that when I was doing some research, I found that The Longest Journey actually only came out in North America in 2000, but in general, I tend to have be putting these dates on um, when they were originally released, because that way you can compare the technology. Um, I also uh, don't know how much The Longest Journey was imported. I assume the Norwegian version had English, but I don't know for sure. So, uh, yeah, that comparison probably wasn't going to be directly made at that point. That's a good point. Mm -hmm. um, I think when you're talking about what happened to adventure games here, there are a couple other games that are uh, pretty notable. Um, 
because adventure games have felt like they were dying since the big shift to CDs and um, hand-painted graphics started becoming a lot harder to do than kind of, uh, you know, uh, 3D graphics that you could build templates and do other things with. Um, so this is a genre that's sort of falling off. It's not doing well with CDs. It's not doing well with 3D graphics. not doing well with full voice because you have to get good voice actors and that costs money. So... Two other games come out on the Dreamcast, Shinmu and Omicron the Nomad Soul, which I believe also came out on PC, that are like, look, we, we'd call them adventures now because they're like, you're com controlling a character who's kind of like going through a world and solving puzzles or bypassing obstacles, but both of these games are doing these things in wildly divergent ways. Shinmu is trying to do this as a... Um, kind of like slice of life simulator as well it's famous for you know you walk into an arcade and you can play the classic sega games in, on your in your arcade in shinmu and your character is there playing them but you're also playing them and omicron the nomad soul was famously attached to david bowie and it's this really weird thing where you're jumping from body to body and like i, I never actually played it so i i just know that it was so weird that it got remembered, although at the time I think reviews were generally bad, but you have this this push for what what should the adventure game genre or what should you know what the what the adventure game genre is turning into look like. And all these things are kind of dead ends. Like the longest journey mm -hmm. is arguably the last of the classic adventure games. Mm -hmm. Um and then Shinmu is an interesting thing that, you know, it might come back, but it did not create a new genre for itself. Omicron the Nomad Soul, who's mostly known for David Bowie, and like, I think some of the games that kind of came out of that, but nothing actually made adventure games work here, but good lord, were people trying. Uh, Sean, did you have something on adventure games? I thought I heard you start to say something, I just want to make sure we come back to you. No, no, I, I appreciate that, but uh, I didn't play any of those. So I was never an adventure game. I just I never was an adventure game fan. So I thought I'd, I thought it, player. Yes, and yeah. so actually, I was having. If I had a thought, it was actually that for as much struggle as adventure games have, actually, classic sort of top down or classic sort of CRPGs were really struggling at this time too. Right there is there is certainly a great one on on our list, but it may also be the only notable one. Unless there's well, something I'm forgetting the, that released at that time. Notable for how bad it was one down there. Um, uh, good oh, are we going to have our two-minute hate on Ultima 9? I never played it. Oh, like, Ultima, but, no, no. Ultima it, 8 it, was it, so bad, and then the reviews for Ultima <laughs> 9 were so bad as well. I was like, fuck it, this is... Uh, the series ends at seven for me, and and I don't even really count it in the same the same group because it yeah. tried to do so many things different from what a classic CRPG is. Like you compare it to what I'm talking about here is Planescape Torment. Um, right. Like nine was you know fully 3D and it was trying to kind of consoleize the ultimate experience in a lot of weird ways that didn't work. Were terrible. It was broken from sort of day one. Um, oh, yeah. But I mean, I think it's I think it's 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 a good example of what RPGs were going through at the time. This isn't the era of Baldur's Gate or Icewind Dale or the Gold Box or anything like this. It was Planescape Torment, which is amazing and perhaps the best of its kind. But it was only Planescape Torment. Right. This is one of the things that I talk about. And I suppose we're getting to 95 soon. Um, there's a huge role playing game collapse in 1995, yep. 96. And. Like, there are four companies that come out of that. Black Isle, Blizzard, um, Bethesda, and uh, BioWare, which 
really convenient that, isn't it? And, you know, those four <laughs> companies with Black Isle kind of spiritually going on to Obsidian and maybe in Exile are still the four biggest RPG companies mm-hmm. um, in many ways. Uh, but the number of RPGs just plummets. You get classic RPGs like Torment, like Fallout, like the Baldur's Gates, but you don't get like 10 of them a year or 10 pretty good ones a year. You get like three or four RPGs and, you know, one or two are going to be great, but it's definitely not that the era that the early 90s was. Yeah, I remember that when we when we were writing about Baldur's Gate 1 and Fallout 1 and even Diablo, um, that the the tenor of those articles was like, RPGs are coming back. You know, we, we had just gotten over like the descent to Undermountain era you know mm-hmm. yeah um just horrendous attempts at at role-playing games back then um i wasn't in uh, rpgs at this time so like what like what's that what's that shorthand for when you're like uh descent to undermountain what what does that evoke because i totally <laughs> missed that period <laughs> you're lucky well <laughs> yeah i mean that was actually exactly what it sounds like it was the descent engine it was interplays Great idea was to fuse the Descent engine with the D and D license, and it's about as good as you can imagine. <laughs> I mean, it was it was just not it was yeah. It, if anyone else wants to take that one up, yes, I, it's right. no so, Ultima Ultima I mean, Nine was its example in 1999. It was I mean I think yeah. it was the same sort of ideas where it was trying and failing to incorporate things that felt like a modern take on like I like the I mean I I get why this was going on because there was this sense that RPGs were failing and there were only these sort of occasional big swings and these companies were, I mean, people still wanted to make those games. So they're like, Oh, how do mm-hmm. we make them relevant again? Oh, I know. Let's slap descent's 3d engine into D and D and see how that goes. The answer bad. Um, and old, I mean, ultimate nine, same sort of story. Right. Well, yeah, I one think- of the big things here is the, the similar thing with adventure games where it becomes way, way, way right. more expensive to have the individual, you know, hand-painted or whatever uh, areas in each game. Mm. So when you talk to the game developers from this era, you know, like Sierra people are like, we basically had to try to put out games in the same amount of time as we did, taking one or two years with games that were like 10 times harder to make. Um, And so you only have these really big labors of love, like Planescape Torment, The Baldur's Gate, and Fallout, uh, like actually make it through um and then you also have a bunch of games that are like we're going to be the future of rpgs we're going to like make them 3d which also mm-hmm. incidentally is cheaper um and then they largely fail like some of them like bethesda manages to come through but they they right. mostly skip these years like uh daggerfall is 96 and then morrowind is 2001 or 2002 like this bethesda just basically is making Redguard or whatever uh, and he, that's also what it is. i should have looked up when that one came out Yeah, Um, I'd forgotten about that one. I forgot about that one, too. (laughs) Our good old Elder Scrolls spinoffs. But I think also, to transition a little here, if you look at the JRPGs we have, um, these are really interesting because you have a ton of sequels, and almost none of them are like, these are fantastic games. Like, there's all a but, at the very least. Um, There's Final Fantasy VIII, there's Chrono Cross, there's Legacy of Kane Soul Reaver, uh, Legend of Dragoon, like... Legend of Mana. They like their legends. Um, oh, there's another classic, classic era PC 
classic style PCRPG, Might and Magic 7. Um, but Might and Magic 6 okay, was the yep. one that like got the big attention. I think 7 was actually supposed to be a better game. but uh, Yeah, that 7 was the start of the decline. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, even even the JRPGs are kind of struggling here, and uh, you start to see them transition into the next phase in 2000 with Final Fantasy X, or maybe that's 2001. Yeah, that's 2001. But you start to see them start transitioning into that next era. And then you have a really interesting game here, Septera Core, which is a PC JRPG that was just like, we like Final Fantasy, we're going to make one of those for computer. And like, it got... Right, it's stuck in people's minds because it was just so weird at that time. Like, I don't know anyone who says Septera Core was like the greatest game, but it's just kind of always showing up on like, here's what RPGs were like because you start seeing people try to blend these two supposedly distinct genres, and then you know the greatest success in that blending is when Bioware starts making their cinematic RPGs, which are basically like Western structure with JRPG companion tropes. And that's really, well, it was a couple of years later, but that's what Tom Hall was going for with Anachronox, too. That, oh, that was... yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anachronox is another really interesting game in that in that kind of vein that you could see eventually what would work there, but the technology and the people weren't quite ready for it. Right, right. Oh, Parasite Eve 2, that's another <laughs> very well-liked, but I don't think, like, top-tier JRPG here. So I have a question about Ultima 9. Um, so my memory of Ultima 9 is a friend of mine who I think was similar to you, Rowan, in that was pretty ride or die for that series. And I don't remember how they'd felt about eight, but nine, they, they ended up showing off to me and it was framey as hell. Uh, they didn't have the system that could, could run it though. I guess at release, there was no system that could really run it. Uh, which was another of its issues. But I am curious, because I didn't play enough of it to develop any kind of passionate hatred or disdain for it, but I'm curious. Um, and Sean, you sort of mentioned that, that this is an attempt by Ultima to be relevant and, and sort of console-esque uh, in some ways. Well, I'm cur- I'm, like, I guess the question I had, is Ultima 9, does it have the right idea and it just goes about it? wrong because if you look at like where a lot of major rpgs have gone uh it is how much can we make these feel like console action games but still be really meaty story driven uh rp rpgs I, w- I would love to give it to the benefit of the doubt but i'm not going to uh because it just it, so i mean you're not right you you have seven you have uh you know uh, ultimo 7.5 serpent isle and then you go straight to eight and i don't know what happened to richard garriott lord british at the time but had they been acquired yeah oh my god they had been acquired at that point they they they? were acquired as they were making ultima 7 which is why elizabeth and abraham ea were the villains ultima 8 is the one that was like this is where you start seeing i I mean i know you you don't like it i still had a soft spot for ultima 8 enough that I, i i finished it i played it all the way through it had some obvious problems but it still felt like it was trying to get to something nine just feels i it just Call it something else, because it's not an <laughs> ultimate. Like it's not an ultimate game at all in any way that is meaningful to me. Shadow um, of the Avatar, or whatever. Yes, it, and that is, I think, an apt, uh, an apt uh, surname. Um. So I, 
when we were talking about that, I just remembered another game that I think kind of sheds some light on the issues that RPGs were having, even though it's not one. Um, and I looked it up, and it was actually from 1999, and that's Prince of Persia 3D, which um, the Prince of Persia series is one of the great series in all of video games, one of the most important transfers through generations. Um, the first two Princes of Persia are amazing side-scrollers, and then, you know, the, the mid-2000s one, starting with The Sands of Time, are just, like, blow the gates off what we can expect an action-adventure to do. And then there's Prince of Persia 3D, which I don't know if any of you all played it, but it tries to take, it, it seems like it should bridge that gap, like conceptually, but the 3D graphics are just unable to really work at making a smooth feeling game. Like it is just clunky. There is nothing else but clunk. Like I, there, when, as I was playing it, I was like, I know like how much this game depends on smooth animation. And this incarnation of it just does not happen. Like, Prince of Persia is not made for this era. And maybe there is a version of it that could be, you know. It's not like Tomb Raider was not popular. Um, But, like, you see these these games, like, sort of try to transition and just, they think 3D is enough, but there's a all kinds of different aspects of what makes 3D work that they're just not able to find and possibly unable to find. Like, who knows if there is a good version of Ultima 9? We didn't get it. Who knows yeah, if there right. is a good version of Prince of Persia 3D? We got one that was pretty good at best. You know, I actually want to introduce an intru- a, a, an idea that that's coming to me as we're talking through this segment of stuff, which is I am now recalling that for a lot of 1999, I was actually kind of upset with video games. And that is <laughs> right. For as much as we're looking at stuff and, and, and recognizing how great some of this is, and it was still like there were there were great games. I'm not going there. But as a huge fan of classic RPGs, as a huge fan of classic sort of Quake and the Unreal games and Doom and this shift to total like online only Unreal Tournament Quake 3 Arena, we haven't even gotten to that. As a fan of Wing Commander games and all there was was Free Space 2 and that was going like this kind of this kind of shift that we have accepted as a reality now this is like the moment not only that that was happening and that some of my favorite game genres were going through a very challenging sort of shift that made it feel like well where are my favorite games even at the time right we we look at counter-strike we look at unreal tournament we look at you know quake 3 arena and that is the first modern sort of first person shooter but i grew up on doom and 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 quake one and you know and and games like even like uh, you know hexen and all the like there it felt like a lot of the things that i loved and I think probably people who are going, you know, huge adventure games fans were feeling those same things were genuinely disappearing and not showing up. So there was there was yeah. it, it wasn't an easy time to be a PC gamer, even though it feels like it should have been. And we've been bitter ever since. It's been 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. Look at so, me. I'm still angry about so it. So in 1999, <laughs> you were lamenting the, the good old days. And now in 2019. God, You're lamenting, you know, not having 1990. This might be a me problem, not a games problem. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> well, these these things sort of go together because you have the chaos of these genre changes. That, like, if you are into certain genres here, and those genres are gone, you don't necessarily know. You know, I liked Longest Journey, therefore, or I like games that are like Longest Journey. Longest Journey is new here, but I like adventure games, therefore I should go get a Dreamcast and play Shinmu. Like, people don't know that. Like, mm-hmm. they might come to Shinmu four years later after hearing about it, but at the 
time, they're not going to be like, oh my god, I know that PC-style adventure games are gone, but something really interesting is happening over on consoles. That That's not coming through at the time. Like, we have, I, you know, I played maybe five of these in this year. I just picked them up slowly yes. over the years after. Yeah, there, there there is a huge sort of uh there's there's so many of these games that I've respected more much later than than I did at first and you know, I mean, like like Planescape Torment, I didn't play till like the next year System Shock 2, I played a couple of years later. Um yeah, it's it, I it's it's a really interesting year uh in terms of what the probably the gap between what I was feeling at the time versus what I came to recognize as truly impressive. I, I would also say, like, when I read that list at the very start about how I had arguably the best of a whole bunch of genres, there are only two of those that I would actually argue for, and that would be Jagged Alliance 2 as the best tactics game mm. and Championship Manager 3, even though later incarnations of that engine were better as the best sports simulation game or strategic sports simulation. Um, but other than that, I wouldn't actually, you know, go to the mat for these. I just know lots of people do. And when you have a year where you happen to have, you know, 10% of RPGs fans mm-hmm. will say Planescape Torment is the best. 10% of immersive sim fans will say System Shock 2 is the best. That still, like, comes through. And then all of a sudden you put that together, and oh my god, 99 look, looks fantastic. But yeah, for me, you know, one of my biggest memories um, is that, like... You know, I remember there was a computer gaming world like Holiday Guide that I went through and was like ranked the top 60 best looking games. And I went through and I circled the ones that I thought my parents might want to get me for my birthday, (laughs) um, which is in late November. Um, And they ended up with Age of Empires 2, which was like the number one game on that super popular game, still considered one of the great real-time strategy games of all time i did not ever click with generic real-time strategy like age of empires 2 was fine i had a decent amount of fun with it but like this was not my kind of game like the the um campaign is trash it's built for multiplayer uh it's just kind of generic history as a cover it does not like any kind of historical simulation like uh i clearly like as i'm the guest on this show um so yeah, mm-hmm. one of my biggest memories of like the new games that I get here is that the biggest new game is one that I think is, you know, the death of good strategy games, which is clearly not the case as there are a whole bunch of really good strategy games here other than that, but it was the biggest strategy game of the year and not of a sort that I like. So uh, that reminds me of something. Uh, I think they're maybe a bit related, which is this idea that while really good multiplayer gaming may still have been kind of tough for most people who are on iffy dial-up, uh, that movement is coming. And there, there's a couple things tied up with that. I think it's a strange year from that standpoint. You, you're, you're right, Sean, for instance, when you cite Quake 3 as being a game that kind of pissed you off. Because I forget how much it pissed me off. Because I, in my head, I've revised my feelings about that game to being like, Ah, uh, you know, those were the days. Uh, you know, that's just that that is classic uh art, you know, classic competitive fast-paced first-person action. Uh but I remember at the time, no, what I wanted was to just run through first-person like uh single-player levels in like I had with Quake 2 and crank up music 
and just like kill a bunch of monsters and just go into that sort of like murder fugue state for (laughs) hours and that (laughs) does not exist on this list in any way right the old old unreal tournament no counter-strike no uh, you know quake 3 obviously no Uh, it just that that didn't need it's not even that there was a good second option it was this is what you do now this is just where it, it it exists yeah, it uh and I think that it isn't just happening with uh w- with Quake. I think mm-hmm. you know, let's re- go back to Age of Kings real quick. Um so I mean this is a strategy show. We should probably spend more than just real quick time. <laughs> no, but so my defining memory of Age of Empires 2 is that my dad got super into it. Um which was weird cuz I wouldn't have considered him like a big time RTS gamer. He he sort of bounced off a lot of the genre to date. And I've talked about this before on the podcast, but it it sort of bears mentioning here where he was able to enjoy that game because the campaign may have sucked, but you could build a beautiful base and play with all your little toys and create soaring towers and battlements and all that stuff. And for him, that was that was Age of Empires 2. And that was a fun game. And he played that to relax. Imagine that. Playing a, a, a really hardcore, old-fashioned RTS, and you found that relaxing. But you could do that in 1999 because it wasn't sort of this default expectation that, well, now you got to take it online. That's where the real game is. My dad would have gotten... Like like most of us did, would have gotten smoked online and would have realized the game he was playing, the thing he was having so much fun, was in fact the wrong way to play. It was a bad way of playing. But it, at the time, you could sort of exist in this, uh, you know, blissful ignorance and play around with, uh, you know, the game as you see fit. Same as, you know, Quake 3 was kind of this expectation that, no, you, you, you want to go frag uh your your friends right like that's that's the that's the attraction here and it hadn't been for me i only get nostalgic for it now in retrospect but at the time it was a real shift and it wasn't one i thought very much of and that reminds me of something else that's on this list is um i think this is the year that x-wing alliance comes out correct it is i didn't put that because i found that game super boring but yeah i probably should have for you rob uh, I mean, I'm not sure you're wrong, is the thing. Like, uh, yeah. in retrospect, I think back, and I'm like, damn, you know, that was the last of the old-fashioned uh, X-Wing games, except it had already been broken a little bit, because before they made that, they made X-Wing versus TIE Fighter. Do you remember how crazy that seemed to you? You're sitting there, like, on dial-up internet, and, like, you've just finished, like, TIE Fighter CD, Collector's Edition, with all those single-player campaigns fully voiced it was awesome and then the next game they roll out looks incredible it looks like star wars brought to life and what they tell you is this is multiplayer only and the way that you do multiplayer is ridiculous the hoops i jumped through for that game right and and that's what's so strange about this era is that there's kind of this rush to embrace online gaming in in a weird way, because I got to believe it was still, even at the time, you were kind of cutting off segments of your audience. Uh, So I really do think it was kind of a matter of conviction, right? Like, we know id uh, in that studio's DNA was about fast 
fast-paced multiplayer. Um, I think a lot of people working at uh, what became Totally Games were into the idea of dogfighting against one another. But I think that was at odds with how people like me and Sean experienced these games over the years. And in 1999, suddenly it's like, ah, you know, the real game is is the one you play against people. And I'm like, no, actually, I think the real game is the one where I'm fucking awesome yeah. against <laughs> I'll that one. bad I'll AI. Take that and yeah, and like, it's interesting because they hadn't monetized that online component at that point. So outside of the MMOs, outside of EverQuest and Asheron's Call, um, you know, they they it was it was a genuine sort of creative decision about here's what we want the game to actually be. If anything, it like you like you point out, right? You're you're segmenting out part of your audience. You are creating a situation where there are some people who just technically can't play your game like you are you are actively reducing your audience and you don't have dlc you don't have subscription models you don't have you know microtransactions you don't have any way to recoup that loss and still all in hmm. and i think that some of the games that we see here as the ones that people remember most fondly are clearly the ones where those companies had like server infrastructure and wanted to make this work epic Unreal Tournament. That was sure. Computer Gaming World's Game of the Year this year. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed it, but that wasn't my my pace. I'm not the online fast paced multiplayer. Honestly, you guys blew that, Jeff. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> clearly in, in retrospect, I'm, I'm actually trying to remember if I voted for it. So I don't want to distance myself from it. Oh, it's the other guys who voted for it, but because um, maybe I did. But I do think I I remember when we were discussing it. You know, part of the justification being, you know, at times we were we were taking sort of like the time person of the year thing. It's not necessarily the greatest person of the year. It's the the most impactful person of the year. And I think that we saw Unreal Tournament as kind of this watershed moment in multiplayer shooters. Um, yeah. That's that's my memory of it. But you know, looking back now at this list, I would probably vote for either System Shock Two or. Uh, you know, my bias of, of Heroes of Mind Magic, nah, probably not. I'd probably say System Shock 2, honestly, or EverQuest. Yeah, uh, it, yeah, and we talk about the RPGs as well, but uh, the other big company that's doing this, in addition to Epic and id, is Sierra, or really mm -hmm. Valve, with mm -hmm. Half-Life, because two of the big games that we have here are a commercialized version of a mod in Team Fortress Classic, which was my preferred online shooter, because yeah. I got to play as the spy and be smart instead of fast. Mm -hmm. um, and then Counter-Strike, which is a mod for Half-Life, which comes out in 1999 and gets like a full monetized release in 2000, but I always think of Counter-Strike as a mod first, so I included it on this 1999 I think, I think list. that's fair. I'm, I'm yeah, with you. I, yep. So... These these companies that have built this infrastructure and start doing styles of multiplayer shooters that you can play in different ways, not just the Twitch, which, like, the Twitch is ridiculous when we think about how many people are on dial-up at this point, right? Um, but the more strategic or tactical team-focused things like Counter-Strike and Team Fortress Classic. And then if you go over and look at EverQuest becoming the model for the online RPG, like... 
EverQuest is a game that is about like specifically segmenting what you can and cannot do in order to make you work together in a team tactically, which when World of Warcraft comes out, it solidifies this is the model for what the massively multiplayer RPG will look like. The Ultima Online model of you're an individual, you can do what you want in the world and other people will adapt to you starts to die with EverQuest. Like Asheron's Call is sort of a halfway in between, but Ultima Online didn't really work that way, whereas these things, these games that come out online that are not based on simply you are the best individual you can be, but rather how do you work as part of a group actually taking on like the really good things that make the online playing with other people accessible and interesting, those are the games that end up succeeding here. Fantastic point. I mean, I have such great memories of playing EverQuest but almost none of them have to do with other people. You know, my memories of other people are basically like, you know, jerks who would like kite, you know, eight, eight <laughs> monsters over to where Train. you were med- meditating. Train, that's what we called it. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you kite the train. Is, is what <laughs> yes. So yeah. So I'm sorry, I'm having Blackboro fa- flashbacks. Go on without me for like a second. So someone wanted to sort of juxtapose because talking about x-wing alliance uh did remind me this is maybe the one of the last really great years for the like sim light i guess you call it like i think the entire sim genre is starting to enter a weird space but this is the year we get uh free space 2 formerly descent mm-hmm. free space and then free space 2 uh from volition uh and then mech warrior 3 mm-hmm. which was a really good mech game and it's interesting to like mech warrior 2 if you go back to it for all the mech customization that's in it it is still very much kind of an arcadey type shooter mech warrior 3 was kind of the first one where they really did go all in on like slowing the action down and making it much more of a systems management game and it's funny how like in this year uh we we see this the space of like the sci-fi combat sim start to really reach its zenith uh but the moment is pretty much like we don't like I don't remember knowing it at the time I don't remember realizing that like oh man X-Wing Alliance don't know if we're going to get another one of these uh I think I did because this year this was the year that Phantom Menace came out and <laughs> Lucas Arts had basically gutted its dev team like Luke, like this was like that. Like the start of the new trilogy was also the moment that Lucas Arts, which had always been kind of treated as a Skunk Works game dev studio uh, within the Lucas Empire, they just decide around this period to demolish the studio and outsource it. So Totally Games was formerly their flight sim crew uh, under uh, Lawrence Holland. They you know they end up making X Wing Alliance, but there's no more Star Wars flight sims uh, a- after a- after this. Um, and well, there's arcadey ones. There's the the you know well, episode one. Yeah, the console stuff. Star Wars Racer yeah. is their big is actually their big game in this list as far as they would have been concerned at the time. What is the one Jedi Starfighter? Is what comes. Yep, Jedi Starfighter. Yep, that one. That one. Uh, yep, that's. But yes, these are these are arcadey things, and a similar thing happens with racing games too. But carry on, Rob. Yeah, but I think it's it, it, it's funny because in retrospect, like I should have realized that maybe this thing didn't, maybe this was not going to appeal 
to everyone in the way it appealed to me. When I went back and played uh, Free Space 2 not that long ago, it's a great game. It is a great uh, space combat game. It is incredibly dramatic. Um, the mission scripting is truly brilliant. Like, do you remember you go out after those, like, reactionary separatists um, who've, like, taken refuge in a nebula? And you're just hunting them through, like, at the time, what seemed like the most incredible and, like, awe-inspiring, uh, you know, nebulae you can imagine. Uh, lightning yep. storms in the clouds. And your sensors aren't working, and you find their sort of, their busted-up fleet. And they're, you know, they're basically sending out distress signals, uh, you know, saying something has found us. Like, we need help. Get us out of here. Get us out. Get us out. These are all really dramatic. Like, Free Space 2 plays like a horror game. Uh, for for much of its length, as a matter of fact, but the thing that I didn't fully remember is how much of that game is also about really getting good with your hotkeys. Like so many <laughs> missions are about okay, like you've got four mission critical craft, and if any one of them gets destroyed, uh, it, maybe it won't end the campaign, but it could spin you off into a series of like the the campaign branched in a couple places if memory serves or you'd lose access to um some special missions uh if you really overperformed but it was a game that was constantly demanding you not just do the x wing tie fighter thing of like balancing shields power uh weapons engines it was also demanding you to really master uh what in the flight sim world you call like avionics right your ability to keep track of a million different things in a really complicated combat environment mech warrior 3 was kind of similar you're constantly like toggling weapon systems and uh trying to keep track of your mission objectives and in retrospect that is so fussy and it requires such a willingness. This was maybe the last year where, like, part of being a PC gamer was to lean a keyboard reference chart against your monitor <laughs> and have it sitting there for weeks on end while you played a game. And now you think, oh, you can't ask, like, you can't ask players to do that. Like, you can't, like, if they can't, <laughs> if you're not sticking to familiar control conventions, people are not going to stick around and deal with that shit. Uh, but at this time, it's it's at once like I think this is an example of a genre that had taken idea an idea really far, but had maybe lost track a little bit of how much it was beginning to ask a player. So that was maybe a different way of segmenting your audience and forcing a self selection that like Tie Fighter, for instance, didn't demand. Mm -hmm. My recollection is that we sort of knew that the the space sim was going out of uh going out of fashion like. Free Space 2 was even sort of like a sideshow because there was one game that was supposed to come along and rescue the entire genre, and that was our great, great leader, Chris Roberts, had yep. the idea Fuck. for the ultimate space simulation that will have everything you want in any kind of space game and that game will definitely come out it will <laughs> definitely be as good as you think it is and it he's will not be talking about star citizen genre. he's not he's not but it you, it feels like it again right <laughs> the, the free, yeah, freelancer it, it's freelancer when did freelancer actually come out i don't like 2001 or 2002 it might have been yeah. 2003 i think we talked about it actually yeah, something like that i think I you're right know. i think it's 2003 yeah, 2003. That, that feels right. Yeah, we right. talked about that on, on the last one of these, or second last I one remember of these we did. I was at a Target in like 2007, and do you remember um, 
there were different tiers of like bargain basement releases. Yeah. And mm-hmm. like once a game it hit the look, we just printed out a CD sleeve and jammed this thing into it and <laughs> you wanted it for like five bucks. That was kind of where games washed up to die. But I remember like in I was in a Target in like two thousand seven and like I turn around and freelancers on the shelf and I completely lost track of that game and I was like freelancers out? What? <laughs> and then I was like, but wait. Is this why? a demo? What is this? Yeah. I was like, but wait, why are you in a CD sleeve? Where's I'm your box? Sure. You. Yeah. <laughs> why are you with the real games? And I remember taking it home and being like, this game fucking owns. Like, it kicks ass. It uh, was a good game. I, I loved Freelancer, but no, you're not wrong. Until two thirds of the way through, it just stops. Until two thirds <laughs> of the way through, it's like uh, we couldn't. We forgot to. We didn't uh, load any AI behaviors into any of the ships in the zone. So you have to like the Rhinelander zone, which is like Space Germany, and like <laughs> no ships. Like they were all there. Like the models spawned, mm-hmm. but like everything was weirdly dead. And then you just went through a, a rapid fire sequence of missions to end the game. But and then it was over. It was done. Yeah, no, because this was this is it's around 1999, I think, when is it Microsoft realizes that they need to get this thing out of uh, Chris Roberts' hands. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, the, the front Microsoft had a number of scenarios like that. It, it's yeah, it, it's it's a sad end for what was a great game, but it wasn't. It never was going to re- revitalize this particular genre. The good thing, though, for you know Chris Roberts is that experience really taught him how to manage, manage a budget and ship a product on Wait, time. Guys, March 12, ninety nine, Wing Commander, the movie comes out by director Chris uh-huh. Roberts. Oh yeah, my God. right. Oh, and then three months oh, later, he's back. Prince Junior and uh, oh God, what's his name? The guy who does all the D and D stuff now, who I like a lot more now. I don't um, know, but David Suchet's in it. Who is? David Suchet, Poirot. I take, uh, wow, all right. Yeah, no, Damn. I will, here, like, Rowan's heard me go off on Rob, this. Everyone, Rob, just do this, just do it. Everyone owes it to themselves. You want to. Everyone owes it to themselves to watch the Link Commander movie. Because it is bad. <laughs> That's a cruel task. I, but it's, I, I'm not, I'm not joking here, I got pre-release tickets to go watch it, and it was the worst decision I've made in my life, and I've made a lot of really bad decisions. No, but <laughs> that's because you had expectations. Yeah, of course I did. How could I not? Even in 1999, though I we all had expectations, point, but we've learned. And it was the second worst sci-fi movie I saw that year. With <laughs> <laughs> do tell? What was the other one? No, 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 no. I'm just, I'm just putting. It's fine. Don't yeah. worry about it. Move on. We're, we're not starting that conversation. <laughs> we're not doing. That. I don't want to. I just, I want. I just wanted to put that out there, and then you can make whatever inferences yeah. you want from that. Uh, uh, I, I, one of the things that jumped out to me, speaking of science fiction um when i was going through the computer gaming world like game of the year list is they also had a like what's coming up next year like at the adventure mm-hmm. one they said we've heard good things about the longest journey so you all were like mm-hmm. on that ah, train okay. um, but another one i think for like the action adventures or whatever said oh it's star wars obi-wan is coming and i'm oh like my goodness. oh <sighs> i remember um it, like I'm going to say it was definitely PC Gamer that wrote this. Uh, They were trying to get me stoked for, in the Phantom Menace game, they were like, don't worry, you'll get to play as Captain Panaka. (laughs) The bodyguard guy who, like, literally shoots the lock off a window, and that is his only contribution. (laughs) Um, 
And they were like, yeah, you get to play badass characters like Captain Panaka. And all the screenshots looked like a really half-assed uh, console action game. And I was like, I don't know if this is... Uh, those don't look like... That doesn't look like Jedi Knight. Where's Jedi Knight? <laughs> Bring back Kyle Katarn. <laughs> so, turning to strategy a, a little bit. Uh, Rowan, you already made reference what? to it. Um... I think we got another hour of non-strategy here. I, I think we can probably start getting into strategy a little yeah. bit, unless you want to. Unless you want to get into sports, I know. I know Sean was really curious about high heat. <laughs> uh, we could get into sports via strategy because we have championship manager three. Um, but I, I did want to say about racing. There's a similar situation where the hardcore racing sims are kind of going out of fashion, and what what's coming into fashion are on console, especially you have like the the Mario Kart wannabes, like Crash Team Racing, and um, but on PC you have one of my favorite arcade racing games, uh, Need for Speed High Stakes, uh, just a really straightforward drive a fast car around a cool track kind of game that I would play forever and ever and ever. And I used to be into much more of the sim racing stuff. Um, but then I think the year before we had Grand Prix legends, which was like the thing that my dad, who was super into the simulation side of things was all excited for. And I played it. I was like, this looks fantastic. I understand why people are excited about this. I have no desire to get into figuring out how to make every single piece of tweaking my car work. Uh, so I just want the arcade racer and need for seed high stakes. Really good at that. Good job. Thumbs up. All right. Strategy games. Yeah. Um, so the overlap with, uh RPGs and strategy games like this is the year that gives us Jagged Alliance 2 um which you argue is the best tactics game ever made I'm not going to be one to to argue uh the case but why, I mean, why do you make it I would say that that is one of the the that is the one that that I mentioned earlier that I would argue the most um and I mean some of this is a product of its time so obviously a lot easier to get into XCOM or XCOM 2 right now than it is to go back into Jagged Alliance 2 but it's still plausible and the things that make Jagged Alliance 2 are still great in it um it is filled with personality uh the sort of idea of each individual merc has their own thing um uh, from Jagged Alliance 1 is really fleshed out a lot like a lot of the mercs have uh uh, like friendships with one another. So you hire Raven and Spider, who are like the two best night mission characters, and they become like best friends. Uh, so that's a big thing that I loved about playing that game was just like listening to all these characters, uh, you know, hanging around, seeing their personalities when shit went down. Like it's all very mild compared to what you would see out of, you know, a Bioware game or whatever later. But at the time, it was pretty mind blowing, like their reactivity. Uh, the tactics are really good. They're it's a little more complex than an XCOM, but it's uh, it's well designed for doing different styles of fighting. Um, like I mentioned, the Spider and Raven combo that I used were the night mode, and like a lot of the tips I saw were get your mercs together so that they can do night assaults because it's way way harder in the daytime. But there are plenty of people who found really good daytime tactics, and uh, you know picking out how to use different sorts of weapons, attach them to the mercs they're using, go with big crews of cheap mercs or small crews of elite mercs, like, is very flexible in that way. And the way that it designed its kind of uh, strategic tactical mode interlocking, where you're, like, going to a... Uh, 
Central American island and nation and trying to free it was just a really good way of connecting things that can be difficult for tactics games the the idea of having a strategic layer that's actually relevant and interesting work exceptionally well in Jagged Alliance too so yeah those are, those are the main reasons that um it stands out as one of my all-time favorite games yeah i would agree with that and especially on the point about the the characters themselves it, it in uh other t- tactical strategy games at the time the xcoms you know your units were disposable for the most part, I mean, there were ones that I would like create and then grow to love mostly because I would, you know, because of the fiction in my own head. But the dialogue I, I remember in these characters was really laugh out loud funny a lot of the time. Uh, and you really kind of actually cared about these characters like in an RPG, um, which seems so unusual for a strategy game at that time. I mean, I think you, in the intervening time, we've seen, uh, like, uh, Japanese strategy games like Fire Emblem, for example, pick up that that idea better than American strategy games have done ever since. Um, but I would like to see somebody like I, I would think the Jagged Alliance could be modernized in the same way that XCOM was. I don't see why it couldn't be. The, the people have the rights, like keep sort of trying to do it, but I'm not sure that they quite quite have the, either the budget or the commitment to it. Have you played any of those, Rob? Yeah, I hate them. <laughs> there we go. Maybe it's, you had to be there. I don't know. Yeah, it's it, they're very much. Uh, it's it's like they're wearing the skin of Jagged Alliance too, um, but they're just not. And uh, like, there's one that sort of seemed to be moving in the right direction, but the problem was it used like a pausable continuous time thing that the AI could never figure out. So it had the same campaign mm. structure, roughly, as Jagged Alliance 2, but you just walked over the AI, the AI in every battle because it couldn't, like, the game basically couldn't play itself. Uh, yeah, no, they, like, it, none of it has really worked. And I think the other part of it, though, is if you went back. I think there's two things. I think, one, Jeff, to your point, Jagged Alliance, that series' entire identity was goofy humor about weirdos, weirdo mercs hanging out together and doing missions. And, I don't know, In I feel like it was of a piece with games like, uh, in terms of humor, maybe Postal or Redneck Rampage. It was like adjacent to those, except it's also a mm-hmm. like it, it, one. It's it, it, it's genuinely funnier, um, but also it is a really challenging, slow-paced, deliberate like tactics RPG. And I think that that Venn diagram barely existed at that moment. Uh, yeah. It certainly doesn't exist now, right? You don't have people setting out to make games leaning that heavily on humor as an animating feature, certainly not in the the major release uh, space. At least that's, that's my feeling. Like, Jagged Alliance 2 does have a lot of goofy shit happening in it, and there are weird characters sort of bouncing off each other, and I'm not sure that you see that uh, as much in, certainly in, 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 like, Western strategy games. And Fire Emblem, I think does have a bit of that, but it's also a narrative RPG. I mean, there's... I don't see a reason that you couldn't do a Fire Emblem with a Jagged Alliance-like tactics. Jagged Alliance 2, 
tactical strategy. No, neither do uh, I. No. Uh, overlay or whatever, because like I think that's probably the worst part of Fire Emblem Three Houses is that it's kind of bad at making those two things seem connected. Um, so do your do your best, uh, Fire Emblem. We believe in you. Right. I mean, you know, it might just have been a, a perfect storm of the right developers at at Surtec at the time. You know, I mean, that just must be an incredibly hard thing to pull off the way that they they melded the genre and the tone the way they did. Um, you know, to to be able to do exactly what you said, to have this pretty hardcore strategy game, it was a difficult game, uh, merged with this, like, kind of ridiculous tone and, and funny dialogue. And this is something that I think uh, Interplay and their various subsidiaries did exceptionally well. This is like the golden age for that publisher. Um, we also have, I'm pretty sure they published Planescape Torment too, and I think there's another weird one they have here, but you, you get like Sacrifice the next year and Fallout and um, Giant Citizen Kabuto. You have all these wow. various God, levels. I of- love Giant Citizen Kabuto and it was just weird i love that you have all these various levels of weird games coming out through interplay with exceptionally high production values for what seem to be like Mm -hmm. mid-tier mid-budget games that you know this is a golden age for that publisher in the way that you say like square had a golden age in the mid-90s or bioware well not bioware as a publisher but you know similar kinds of things where yeah that's what i was thinking about at the at the start of the show that's sort of i was trying to say there that you know that that publishers like Interplay had the luxury of, of taking those chances, you know, and just putting out this absolutely goofy shit and having it work. And maybe it didn't sell like millions, well, nothing sold millions at the time, but, but it was, you know, it was a viable project. Like who would greenlight giants today, you know, or, or half the games on this list. I still don't know how to describe giants. I can't begin to, but I just have this huge, very fond memory of it but you know and it it, it did looking back it did feel a little bit like they were flailing too i mean mean, certainly they were hit hard by the change in rpgs because they were one of the co-publishers of a lot of the black isle and the um they weren't publishers on baldur gate were they uh yeah i think they were yeah i think they were yeah so i think they were trying to find their space yeah but i think i think you can actually see some of the struggles to come in the way that they're trying to find some space that they live in in this time right. um, like their conventional yeah. successful games are the two-dimensional ones the yes. fallouts and the ball yes. game, whatever and they're just yeah. fucking around with the 3d shit and some of it i love some of it i missed some of it i don't love but like everybody seems to have at least one of those they love but it did not land well and just with jagged alliance useful context is that Surtech is watching the bottom drop out of the wizardry series, right? Wizardry. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Right. Well, they're, they're taking eight years to go from wizardry seven to wizardry eight <laughs> uh, because of, you know, all these technical issues. And finally, when 3d kind of calms down a little bit, that's when they actually get wizardry eight out and it's a good game. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're stuck in limbo with that for almost a full decade. Talking about uh, strategy, I, I, I want to bring up what is probably, at the time, was my favorite strategy game of the year. Um, and and I think it's so interesting because we were talking a little bit earlier about how the application of 3D space and 3D environments is, is so good. But I think this game 
did a better job with 3D environments than any game on this list at that time and that year. And that's probably just, you know, some of that is just my being, you know, curmudgeonly about the whole thing. But but Homeworld is a beautiful game that was evocative in a way that no game like it ever had been. And it took this complex 2D genre and it put it in a 3d space in a way that i i don't know many games have ever really matched in a in in certainly in a um a, a strategy gaming sense i loved 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 homeworld at the time again above something like an age of empires 2 or or some of the other games we have on this list um and it's interesting because uh it, it is such you have it at the same year as uh battle zone 2 combat commander which i don't even remember i remember the original battle zone um but a lot of these companies were you know these strategy makers were trying to figure out how do we take a 3d space and make something that's playable out of it homeworld figured it out and nailed it in one as far as I'm concerned. Well, I don't think they nailed it, but they nailed it about as well as they possibly could because you sure. are trying to do a 2D style of game in a 3D space, and it's It's not easy. It's kind of clumsy. It's not easy. They do a fantastic job with what they are given there, but I can sort of see why this did not become the model for real-time strategy games, because like the conceptual ease with which you can say, here's what's going on in Age of Empires 2 compared to trying to explain what might be going on in Homeworld when someone does not necessarily know how Homeworld works. Uh, there's a huge difference there. I remember that uh, that I appreciated Homeworld, but I sucked at it so bad because I, just, <laughs> I, could, I couldn't comprehend the 3D space at the time. It was, it was just too... It was too unusual. It was really an ambitious game. That was also the start of Relic Studios, right? That was that was their first game. That was Alex Garden's first game, and I think he was like barely out of his teens at the time that he made that game, which is also incredible. So, did uh, you have? Go ahead. I was just asking if Rob was uh, had more to say about Jagged Alliance too, because I know he actually replayed it recently. Yeah, like not much more than uh, not much more than we've said before on this show. Uh, like I, I think it uh, the the thing that does kind of pain me when I look at Jagged Alliance too is that that campaign structure appears to have completely vanished. Um, but I think in general we kind of are. It is tough to find uh, strategy games. I think with like truly great. Uh, like campaigns with a coherent through line. And I think that remains kind of a, a challenge today. I think Homeworld is an interesting case because do you remember how uh, their entire thing was you carry troops over from mission to mission? Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Except, which was cool because you felt rewarded for being a good admiral and all that stuff. But the problem was Homeworld was a game where you could absolutely hose yourself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you would like... Complete three missions by the skin of your teeth, and then you'd hit a wall where it's like, ah, here's the real hard mission that we've been sort of winding up for for a few missions. And I'd be like, oh, I thought the last one was the hard one, (laughs) and I left it all on the field for that one so and i'm playing the like okay go back how many like what is the last save i made before i completely destroyed my chances of completing this campaign i think that's kind of the thing that ends up cutting against homeworld uh which is that it is it, it there's a lot of brilliance in that game but man i don't know like when i've revisited it more recently 
what really jumped out at me was there's a lot of frustration in that game too. It's it's de- it's deeply challenging. I mean, I, 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 I would, get it. even to the point of of just collecting resources and being able to like even if you did carry stuff over, even if you did have all those elements and you need just needed to kind of collect what you needed to collect. Every mission was hard, whether you did good on the previous one or not. Certainly, if you didn't, it was it was harder. Um, but I mean, I think. I don't know for some reason, and usually that stuff bothers me so much, but there was something about the kind of Battlestar Galactica last yeah. of the last of the group that, 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 I mean, it evokes at the start, this sense of you're probably going to die. <laughs> this is, yeah. this is, you're probably done, but see what you can do with it. That, that I, it probably frustrated me at the time, but I have deeply, I, I just love looking back on it. Well, when we talk about the strategy games of this year, the very best of them are ones that have a ton of personality at a level yeah. that I don't think that like it took it took fifteen years for strategy games to start getting that level of personality again. Um, maybe not fifteen, like something like XCOM starts to get that get that personality the, the reboot. Um, but when you talk about Jagged Alliance two, when you talk about Homeworld, when you talk about Alpha Centauri, mm-hmm. and to a lesser extent, stuff like Roller Coaster Tycoon, Age of Wonders, Pharaoh, um, Dungeon Keeper two, these things are just like personality like everywhere where strategy games can often struggle with that. But Homeworld, like when you mentioned Battlestar Galactica, Homeworld has a lot of that like weird kind of eastern flavor of it's the end of the world yeah just it's music the battlestar galactica five years later would take on it's like did these people play homeworld was this something (laughs) from the original battlestar galactica like bear mccreary the 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 music director on homeworld no it's you're absolutely right i couldn't couldn't agree more and i love this this idea of the 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 personality of games being so strong in there, like you mentioned Dungeon Keeper, but Alpha Centauri is, that was, that was the big, like when I look back fondly on Alpha Centauri and it's probably my favorite of that era of the Sid Meier's games. um, What makes it is all those different factions and faction leaders and the way that that had never been portrayed in that way before. Uh, Yeah. So I, I agree. Uh, and Age of Empires too. Like, say what you will about that game as a game, but like that game is smooth. It's beautiful. Like, you can see why it's appealing. Why it became a model mm-hmm. for the idea of what an sure. RTS should be, uh, even if you don't actually like that model. And and that game also, you know, did help for better or worse, I guess. But it it did help uh, popularize and, and mainstream strategy games to some extent, or certainly real time. Anyway, I mean, this was the era where. Yeah things were shifting more to real time from turn based and you did have a lot more people at least willing to try and dip their feet in the water because of age of vampires because it was you know yes it was generic it wasn't actually based on any real historical situations but it was also also not uh you know space goblins or uh you know, or or fantasy stuff, right? It was a little more, you could get people who were just not into that kind of genre fiction to play this game. Um, and also, I, I have to say, I'm kind of a naysayer on Alpha Centauri, only because as just as a lifelong Civ uh, fan, uh, for me, Alpha Centauri, it was just 
it was just the same game, but with a whole lot of proper nouns that I didn't understand. <laughs> you know, you, you know? I was just like, you're just making shit up here. I mean, I know that it always is that, but I, 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 I just couldn't, I couldn't get over that hump. I was like, no, actually, that's just coal. Whatever you're calling it is. <laughs> so, but I, but be, but clearly, I mean, you know, that was, yeah. I, I, I respect all your guys' love of that game. <laughs> oh, oh, oh no, we're we're getting into it. Don't worry, Jeff. Well, Jeff has to go. Okay. Uh, <laughs> hey, my mic is uh, cutting no. out. Um, no, I, I think <laughs> Elvis Centauri is interesting because I remember there was an element when that game came out of boy, this is a lot like Civ Two, right? Like the mm -hmm. like in terms of the way it plays, it feels an awful lot like Civ Two, but Civ Two in space. Uh, but I think that does tend to undersell how, for one thing, that uh, to me that, that fiction was weird and unsettling. And I think the the proper nouns that didn't make a lot of sense. I think that thing that you disliked about it is probably what I loved the most about it. For me, Alpha Centauri mm -hmm. was me a too. game of just one thing after another of like, you'd hear, you'd, you'd get a new technology unlocked or a new building would be built and you'd hear one of those quotes from the game and like a lot of times like you'd sort of do a double take and be like, wait, excuse me, what? What What did you just say? What did, uh, you know, like there's a description of... um. I think it's the technology is like MMI, Mind Machine Interface. Uh, but the quote you get for it is the uh, UN Peacekeeper uh, Chairman Previn Lal uh, talking about how it feels like a violation of the human consciousness to be hooked into it. And the thing that he can't shake after he experiences it is this notion that something crossed – like not only did he cross into a machine uh, using that technology, but something crossed back. And he no longer like feels confident that he like the self that he had is the same self that he had uh before using this technology and for me, like I ate that shit up because I think the other thing for me is I was a pretty I hadn't been immersed in genre sci-fi fiction for a lot of my mm. life. So a lot of the stuff in Alpha Centauri that comes up, the stuff it deploys, this is kind of my first exposure to it. I remember when we when we talked to Brian Reynolds uh, ages ago about this game, he sort of admitted that a lot of Alpha Centauri's flavor is just kind of cribbed from, um, you know, the 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 quotes that lead off the chapters in the Dune books. And... I didn't read the Dune oh, books until wow. after I played Alpha Centauri. Oh my god! I didn't. I'm. I didn't hear that. Oh, that's so cool. I love that very much. Yeah, but like, <laughs> but to me, it was like, holy shit! Like, you can do so. Like, this game tells an entire story through quotes that like aren't explained in the main narrative of the game. That's incredible. I that that had never really occurred to me uh, when but, I played that. So to me, like there, like not only do I think the fiction is good in Alpha Centauri, but this is the first time encountering some really weird and good ideas. And I and I love that there actually is sort of a meta narrative to a Civ game, right? I I don't think mechanically you can argue the point against the point that it is largely a Civ two mod of some kind. Um, but to me, it, it, go ahead. What? Oh, no, carry on. I just no, said okay. but worse. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Fair. Fair enough. I think you could make the same complaint against 
Counter-Strike, but we will not, I, 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 we can re- reinvest in that if we want. What I loved about this game at the time was, of course, the sci-fi theme. I, 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 I'm on board with that. I love the meta-narrative component of that, which does not exist the same way in a Civ game. And I love the inter- the, the way there's also this competing uh, uh, world and, and sort of the, 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 the fungus in the world like the the environment you are operating in despite the fact that the mechanics are extraordinarily similar it seemed to interact to me at least in a in a very different way and lead me through something that felt way more cohesive um than than a a civ game does i love civ games i'm not you know bashing on civ games but it made a big enough distinction for me with alpha centauri that i don't really end up comparing them that much in the way that i think about them for me, like, I don't disagree with most of the things you all said, and I have fond memories of Alpha Centauri, but none of the memories I have uh, that are good about that game are the game. There are all these things that are attached to the game, and that's not nothing. But, like, I can remember, you know, gigantic civilization campaigns that i had i can remember like all these various master of orion campaigns really interesting narratives that emerged out of that i remember nothing of the sort from alpha satori the main the main memory that i have about the gameplay of that is that you every time you reinstall that game you have to go and fucking turn off the tech tree thing where you (laughs) you don't choose the tech directly you choose an idea that you're sort of working for yeah and it's just (laughs) like that well i can sort of see what they were going you think but i think it's an example of how the game like just does not manage to quite integrate the way these things all work out together no this is preposterous Uh, other ones there's you know I don't like updating my units. Alpha Centauri had a lot of updating unit mm-hmm. stuff. Um, you could have it set to be automatic, but that just kind of made automatic generic new units pop up and wasn't terribly interesting. And don't get me fucking started on trying to adjust your like height of things for the rain levels. Like I just put all of my fucking workers on automatic. It was like, you do you guys. I'm just, I'm, I'm out. <laughs> Well, really, you say there's nothing very memorable uh, about the actual like playing of the game. But let me say about a memorable game I had where I had an army, and there was like a lot of xenofungus between me and where I wanted that army to go. <laughs> and um, I gave that army the same move command for like 18 turns in a row until they moved like one square into the xenofungus, and uh, then we repeated that. Uh, I'll never forget that. No, like, I, 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 I actually, you're kind of calling my bluff there. Uh, because I remember getting into, like, some vicious wars. Um, I remember occasionally flooding out people by melting the ice caps. Um, I remember... That's pretty interesting. Yeah, it was pretty good. Uh, and I remember, like, just basically exterminating Sister Miriam Godwinson from the map, because he basically had no choice. Uh, just, you know, you had to put that mad dog down. The um, Gandhi of Alpha Satori. What? The, the Gandhi, Gandhi of Alpha Satori. Yeah. <laughs> um, God, the other weird thing is just the the David Lynch influence on that game and its wonder <laughs> videos was truly uh, bizarre as well. Uh, but no, I, I I get what you're saying. As far as personality, I have a question for y'all. Roller Coaster Tycoon. 
did the was the game aware that it was a sadism simulator? Like, was the game, like, I know what people did with it, but what I can't remember is in 1999, was the game like, yo, you can just mercilessly just fuck with these people. Have at it, kid. Did the game know you were going to do that? Or was the game like, let's build theme parks? Yeah, exactly. Um, like, I remember I actually played in in the time a lot more of Theme Park, which came out in 1994, apparently. Um, and, like, that one was actually more explicit about, like, these people are kind of messed up and you're, go you're going to have to, like, decide what you're going to do if you're helping or harming them. Um, and then that one went on to do Theme Hospital, which was, like, you know, obviously more directly, like, uh, yeah, you can fuck with these people's lives. Go for it. Um, where well you had Transport I mean, Tycoon least... in like 94 like I think the Tycoon yeah. game yeah. the genre was robust yeah yeah yeah. yeah it, it kicks off this new incarnation of it that I think to go back to Rob's point I think it actually kind of uh declines on the what they show about like the individual personalities of each person and as they're going around and uh it, it sort of makes it like a, a mass pain dispensary but it is you know under the guise of capitalism therefore this is actually a positive thing and and you know there's this big wave of it i liked roller coaster tycoon just fine i just do not have any particular like especially strong feelings about it, but I do remember that compared to Theme Park, it did feel like this was this was the more, like, cleaned-up, whitewashed version that could become a gigantic hit, and did become a gigantic hit. Well, Rowan, because I'm sure... it got sold for decades in those single sleeves uh, uh, yeah. at the Target for five bucks, and it's like, roller coasters? I like roller coasters, let's go do this. And this game was just around forever, so good for it. Um, I'll just comment here on something I see happening, which is that um not a good era for war games. <laughs> and I think that's fair. And I like and it feel like this is one of those things that this genre is about to leave the mainstream. Uh it's already starting to, but it like it is such a strange thing to think. Like Close Combat 2 Atomic Games was a major Microsoft studio. This was mm -hmm. a like not necessarily a, a, a crucial franchise for them, but it was meaningful. Uh, Close Combat Three had been their Eastern Front game. Close Combat Four, I think, was where I fell off. I had not liked Close Combat Three uh, nearly as much as Two, and Close Combat Four. I, I was just like, I've seen this movie too many times. I kind of punched out. Uh, Operation Art of War comes out. Uh, the, the Operation Art of War Two, which is basically just we moved into the modern era and it's not quite as good or interesting because uh, the Operation Art of War is just not set up to war game Vietnam very well. Um, and then <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 
Sounds like a form I have to fill out. I, I, I went to the Wikipedia page and it said, like, this game sold 1,235 copies. And I'm like, really? Ouch. But Rob was saying here, like, we see all, every board game that I managed to find. And board games are one of the hardest things to research here. So it's entirely possible I'm missing something amazing. Um if so, then Computer Gaming World also missed it, but whatever. <laughs> yeah. Every Yeah. Yeah. Uh oh, every yeah. single war game here is a lesser sequel, except for one. Panzer General 3D is uh I I mean I never actually played Panzer General 3, but I don't see people talk about it the way they talked about Panzer General 2. Um Close Combat 4, like Rob went on his big speech about Close Combat 2, and like you just saw him be like, eh, whatever. Um Sid Meier's Antietam is like Gettysburg without personality. Nobody wants that. Uh I mean I didn't all, want this. Is it, that even a Fraxis was... game? I know that Waterloo wasn't. Sid like they made a Waterloo game based on that engine. I think mm. it was technically a Fraxis one, but it was missing the whole like Grand campaign, choose your adventure type of thing, which was what gave Gettysburg all of its like. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that was just kind of a disaster in that way. But the one game that I never actually played, but always kind of jumped out at me, was Italiansoft's Battle of Britain, which was a game where you like took control of the British as the Nazis tried to swarm you and like tried to hang on by the skin of your teeth as a turn-based war game. And I always found that concept fascinating, and I've never actually gotten around to playing it. I wonder if any of you did. No, I think it was Gary Grigsby. No, this game flew totally Me too. under my radar. So this is just Surviving the Blitz, the strategy game. Oh, that looks interesting. I would have... This really looks like a Rob game. It does, but here's the problem. In context, like, this also... Think about the other games we've talked about. An ad for yeah. this shows up in for computer game in computer gaming world. It, like this is the era where you start to look at this and be like, "Ugh, that's not." And Panzer General 3D is an attempt to address that, where they're like, "Oh damn, we can't be." So they go away from their beautiful, uh, like painterly pixel art to kind of a, you know, just the, what 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 clunky 3d games always look like and that in that era which is sort of a smear of textures uh yeah that's what right, general a, becomes right and and that you know, i mean this is like a common thread running through everything we've talked about here a lot of these games mm-hmm. in throughout once persia you mentioned is another great example of a, of a series that at that time just had a really rough transition into 3d and i mean that's what happened that's what was happening at that time I I think that's why Panzer General. I, I can't even remember yeah. that. I knew. I, in fact, I didn't even remember that game existed until you mentioned it just now. <laughs> for me, the series died at two. I think a weird thing that happened in that game also is that they decided to like have the campaigns be based on real German generals. So you played as like Rommel or Metternich or not Metternich. Um, whatever. Wow, deep cut. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you played as these specific German guys that it was like oh i don't i don't really feel all that comfortable stepping directly into a named character's shoes like i could do the nazi shit like if it's kind of a general abstracted shit but when you're like connecting me to one person i cannot get myself like i cannot get that motivation 
Welcome to the Bob. <laughs> Welcome to the Balkans, Comrade Hydrek. It's like no, thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like, and we are one year away from when Combat Mission arguably reinvents the war game with a Wego system and a good implementation of 3D. But by that point, it is becoming increasingly a, a niche thing. Speaking of niche things. Rowan, both you and Jeff were really high on High Heat 2000. Uh, All right, let's go for it. Yeah. Let's get into this real quickly. So uh, we're done with the first half of the podcast, and now we come into the second half, <laughs> which is just High Heat from here out. <laughs> I don't. Ha- I only have like 10, 15 minutes on now. Uh, <laughs> so like, in the 90s, there was... EA only took over some sports. EA definitely had Madden taking over football. EA definitely mm-hmm. had hockey, and they were starting to get FIFA into everything. Baseball and basketball were still a little like you know. What was it triple else. play? Was that their brand? Yeah, that back was then? their brand. Yeah. yeah okay. Um, so baseball was kind of up for grabs through the late nineties, and it wasn't. I don't remember any good baseball games like from between 93 and 98. There probably was, but uh, then along comes High Heat 2000, which is the second game in that series. I know virtually nothing about the first one, but this game just like blows off all the stuff I'm reading. Like Jeff said, it took over the computer gaming world offices, and I could see that manifest in how much computer gaming world talked about High Heat 2000, and I eventually went and got it. And like, this is the sort of baseball game that I think tends to work best because it like distills the whole thing into the like poker game between the pitcher and the batter. Um, And this is a thing that like RBI baseball did when it took over baseball games on the in the ass in like 1987 or whatever like it's just this guessing game of like you know going rock paper scissors or whatever with your you know unless it was pedro martinez in which case didn't matter you're striking out anyway um but it went through all these different aspects of just that one particular duel and it fucking nailed it like uh And one of the things that, and the reasons that I wanted to talk about it is that when I look at how baseball games have gone kind of since, they're more into like simulating what the batter sees, like so that a good batter will like identify a pitch and where it's going earlier. And then you kind of move the controller to do that. And Rob, you could probably like step in and say where the, the genre has gone, but like, that's not what a good baseball game feels like to me, even though that probably is what a batter actually feels when they do it. What I see is like the pitcher makes the guess, the batter makes the guess. And we see if those two things collide and then what happens. Um, and so High Heat 2000 represents to me this sort of ideal of what the baseball game should feel like as someone who likes but does not play baseball. Um, And then there's another aspect to it that stands out is that this is also the era where sports games are starting to get super into we're going to simulate not just what playing the sport or watching the sport looks like, but specifically watching the sport on television. Um, They're trying to get the most famous announcers they can to do their games. They're trying to get like a sort of in-stadium feel to the, their, what they're doing. Like I'm playing the NHL games during this era a ton. And uh, like 
you can see the sort of escalation of production value in making it look like television. High Heat 2000 takes a step back from all that, and it feels like you're sitting in the stands watching a game, listening to a radio. It's a very... Um, just like mm. what is happening is the only thing that you're paying attention to. The There's just one announcer who's a fairly subdued radio guy. There's no like analyst coming in. They're not making jokes with one another. Um, and it, the sounds that you hear are mostly the sounds of what baseball on the field sounds like. So there's this just this sort of interesting merger of like an ideal way to watch baseball with an ideal way to think about how I would play baseball as I watch it that High Heat 2000 really nails in a way that uh, I have struggled to find in most other sports games. That was an excellent summation. I I, I can hardly add because I was really right on. I mean, everything that, that we loved about it was was really what you just said. I mean, the I, I can't think of another uh, baseball game since that really captured the that kind of chess game of the of the pitcher batter dynamic. That was the whole thing. It was it was really almost like playing a strategy game when you, especially when you were playing against human opponents, um, which is what took over the the CGW office. Hmm. You know, this was um, Trip Hawkins. This was his game. Um, it was a total labor of love of of trips after he left EA and started 3DO. Hmm. Um, you know, I, he, he, he's had an, an, an incredible career and, you know, and, but high heat baseball doesn't like make the top five when you talk about trip. And yet this was, you know, truly he, th that dude loved baseball. Probably. Not it, it, if you got together and talked to him personally, all he would talk about is baseball. <laughs> and then he made this game. Then he made basically the best baseball game that ever came out on the, on the PC. And uh, what I remember specifically about um, the way it took over computer gaming world was um, also what Rob said, which was that it it was gripping to watch. So we made a league. Uh, all the editors and the artists, even people who didn't play baseball, were into this, or even really understand baseball, were were part of this league that we had, and we 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 made a whole schedule of uh playoffs i don't know how we ever got a magazine out because like all we were doing was, was playing this <laughs> baseball game all day and but everybody was watching everybody else's games you know we would go into the to the lab where the the pcs were and watch the, the two-person face-off because it was every one just felt like this incredibly tense uh death match um so yeah there was just something i don't i don't know what it was in the dna of that game uh, but I, I think you, you nailed it most specifically in that in that specific dynamic, more than anything else, more than the aesthetics or, uh, you know, or the, the bigger picture of other things going on, all the other strategic aspects of baseball, the, the base running, all those other things kind of took second fiddle just to that one core thing. But, they, but it was done so well. I, I think that's the one game that almost acts sports game that that. Uh, came close to winning our game of the year. Um, yeah. Wikipedia said it was second, although when I went and looked through the pages, it didn't say exactly like which one was second, although I might have missed that. But yeah, I can certainly believe it. It's funny. Uh, is What you're describing, I think the best parts of it are familiar to me because they are the things I would say are the best parts of MLB The Show, which I think... Mm -hmm. 
became a notable series in part because it was the first really great baseball game uh, to come out probably since the High Heat era. Uh, so I think, like, what you talked about, the pitcher-batter interface, like, that's kind of where MLB, the show's uh, bread and butter in it is. And I think the distinction uh, to, to some of what you, you mentioned, I think prior, it sounds like prior to High Heat, there was this fantasy of um, sort of the RBI baseball model, which is like, if I went up to the plate, I would keep my eye on the ball and I would tattoo that thing and just knock it out of the park. And that's baseball. And MLB The Show certainly follows in this tradition, sounds like High Heat does, where it's this idea of, no, you kind of need to be set up on the pitch. You kind of have to have an idea of, okay, here's what's probably coming down at me because, you know, the pitcher is starting to get a little gassed. Uh, you know, they're losing, they're losing command a little bit of, of these pitches. So here's the bread and butter. So I think it's going to come here and it's going to be this pitch and I'm going to wait for it. And if you guess wrong, uh, you know, you, you, you probably can't correct. You probably can't react and, uh, and change that. But yeah, what you described sounds very much, uh, like what MLB, the show has continued to get right. Um, but obviously that now is, it's probably less revolutionary because, MLB the show has been doing this for like 10 years um, and arguably yeah. hasn't evolved that much. Yeah. And I can't, I can't remember exactly, but my, my recollection of baseball games before that on the, on the PC, you know, they were largely more simulation style games. La Russa, like I think was, yeah. yeah. Tony La Russa, an amazing game. They, um, they were either one or the other. Like I loved yeah. Hardball, but Hardball was much more of an arcade style. Well, not that much right. more, but it was notably more than High Heat was. Yes, High yes. Heat tried to be both the simulation and the action. Yeah, yeah. Hardball was accolade, I think. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I have the Hardball Two theme stuck in my head permanently. <laughs> <laughs> Again, that you know, PC speaker noise doesn't get out. <laughs> uh, so going on to my other favorite sports game from this year, Championship Manager 3, uh, I I think we talked a little bit about Championship Manager 2 on the 97 show, probably, yeah. but Championship Manager 3 uh, is actually still the model of that engine that kind of stands out as the very best form of the soccer strategy simulation, where, uh, like, at its core, this is you buy your players, you put them out on the field in the tactics that make them work, and then you see what happens. And uh, a lot of the football manager games since then have kind of over-complexified this. There's mm. a whole bunch of other things going on, like what you say in the press conference might be relevant to your players' morale and things like that, where really, like... If you're into soccer tactics, the thing you want to do is say, I want to make these players click on the field in the way that makes me happy and seems to work. And the Championship Manager 3, although that version was that incarnation of the, the engine was pretty buggy, um, Championship Manager 0001 and then 0102 uh, were the ones that really like nailed it. Um, but Championship Manager 3 got that in like the right interface. Championship Manager 2 had been fairly clunky. Um, 
And three also just like it got all the licenses to the big leagues. This is the one where like it's not just England, France, and Italy or England, Spain, and Italy. You could also get Germany and France and Argentina. And I think they even started getting the MLS, though it was not a good simulation at that point. Um and like I don't know. I that incarnation of the series might be the game that I have put the most hours into. Uh over those three those three games and there are still people out there making updates and patches for the last of the championship manager threes uh 0102 Lord. like that's still a a i mean i think football manager is finally quieted that down but like as of four or five years ago you would still find people making things for that and like a community for that you can google it and find it for free because the company was just like people still like this let them play it uh so yeah, that 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 one really stuck, um, and uh, just one of my all time most important games and eventually favorite games. Hey, um, so let's start wrapping up about here. But I have a question for folks. Oh God, we, we mm-hmm. have like ten more games. Um, <laughs> I don't know that I do. Uh, okay, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but a question I had for folks. Any of y'all get an outcast? Uh, yeah, Aquemini, oh. one of my favorite albums. Um, can never go <laughs> oh, God, I, kn- God damn it. I knew it. I knew it. I was waiting for it, and I'm glad it happened. <laughs> yeah, because this game has such a following to this day, but I never, I, I never got into it. Yeah, I didn't either. I though I can really like I. I love. I, I think I feel like, like I play shit. it. I feel like it should be. Yeah, like it's gorgeous and it's got this. It's got this cool aesthetic to it. And yeah, it's. Um, we're, I don't we're think I played. About the, it was like that weird, uh, like that voxel. Right. Exactly. Engine. Yes. Okay. Yeah. 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 God, we're that there. was really cool at the time. I did it's love that. So at the cool. Time. Yeah. I I I actually totally missed almost everything about it although maybe if i saw like screenshots i would recognize it and only added it to this because when i was going through computer gaming world's list <laughs> uh i was like oh they gave this best adventure game i guess i should put this here so yeah we're, we're all on the outcast outside i guess we we, sh- we really need to spend a minute or two with system shock too don't we like i feel yes, like that's, that's the, i feel like that's the one on here like how have we not gotten to that yet um, there there are a few very good uh, strategy games that i would like to talk about but system shock 2 is by far the biggest of the non strategy games except maybe silent hill yeah, yeah. no i system shock 2 like man you talk about Again, games with personality, games with an atmosphere, games with a... Like, more than any game on here, System Shock 2 is the one I can most quickly re-envision in my head and pull out moments of just really sort of mind-blowing sense of gameplay. And, like, it had that whole... Uh, you know, it had that RPG element and all that that mm-hmm. that, that system baked into it, and oh my god! Like I don't even remember it in terms of the visuals. It's one of those games where, right? It, it's nice that it has a retexture and sort of update mod, but it wasn't a it wasn't even no, that fucked great that looking at the time. Okay, <laughs> well, because <laughs> I don't care. I don't like. I don't see the game. It's one of those games that I don't see in the way that it is presented on screen to me because it evokes you, you a. You just see redhead launch 
Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I, I mean, because just the way it creates that atmosphere goes above and beyond what the visuals of it are. It evokes this world, and yeah, I, 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 totally I love that yeah. game. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the games on the list that I feel like a hundred percent confident that I could boot it up today and have just as great of a time and. Maybe the graphics are a little dated, but I won't care at all because everything else about that game was was so uh, unique isn't the word. It just was really just so well baked together. Um, we talked about RPGs were suffering at the time, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. they were. But this was a game where you know he took Ken Levine took the, an at what was essentially an action game and fused RPG elements into it. You could yep. play it in many different ways, right? You could you could customize your character as you wanted to, which was really unusual for an action game at the time. I mean, we probably I would imagine we argued about what genre it was even when it came out, um, and it also had just like incredible uh, sound and atmospherics is another thing I remember. The that game. sound, like the environment, like I mean, you you obviously remember like the first time you walk through the hall, and then from down the hall you hear like "kill me," or the first time you encounter one of those psychic monkeys. <laughs> oh, oh god, the psychic well, monkeys! Well, <laughs> like, well, I think we just found a day for our episode. Psychic monkeys! Oh god, find psychic monkeys! Uh, yeah, and they're such good, like. I know audio logs became passe and wildly overused, but they were mm -hmm. great but in that game. But there was a time where they weren't, and it is yeah. so good in that I, game. I remember, like, there's that audio log where, like, the head of the medical department is sort of mansplaining primate behavior to one of the nurses who's like, hey, uh, have you noticed how <laughs> fucked up these monkeys are acting? And he just sort of gives this really pompous, like, you know, there have been literally thousands of studies of primate intelligence, and none of them suggest anything like behavior of the sophistication that you describe. Get some sleep. And don't <laughs> file reports like this. And of course, the monkeys got loose and killed everybody. <laughs> uh, but like, it's it, what they do. They're monkeys. It was, and it was kind of a genius solution at that time to how do you tell story mm -hmm. in a shooter? Um, I, maybe there were audio logs before System Shock Two, but I, I it, well, System Shock was, One, right? Well, like yes, probably course, the one right. that used that the most, right? It, right. But he. Uh, there was so much story conveyed in those in those logs that and you wanted to listen to them because they were so well written yeah um, there's so many games now where i try i want to listen i i tell myself okay i'm gonna get into the lore of this and then after three or four audio logs i just can't anymore um ghost recon wildlands is a good example of that where i actually think there's a lot of great dialogue in that game and there's a, some pretty good storytelling but the sheer volume of audio logs, too, is another thing that I just don't want to listen to them all. But in System Shock 2, it felt like uh, like you wanted to. It was well, part of the whole thing. They're and all you'd hide in a closet so you could hear it, the whole thing, yes. too. Like, you, <laughs> like I'm just going to lock this door so they won't come kill me while I'm trying to listen to this. <laughs> and they weren't treated like collectibles, either. It wasn't just no. like this busy work, you know? Mm -hmm. Got it. I, uh, so I did just go back and I, I replayed that one a little bit. And to your point about the graphics, I think that's a game that sort of stumbles into a really happy, um, whatever the reverse of the Uncanny Valley would be. 
because it there is an aesthetic weirdness to that game that is an artifact of the specific crudeness of the texture of, of the models uh where like they're kind of these boxy headed monstrosities with uh textures sort of stretched over them but for some reason they just become these weird suggestions of the the idea but they're not representative objects is the weird thing right so like you get a strong impression of the um like the most basic enemy the zombie right you get a strong impression of what that is but you can't actually conjure to mind very well what it looks like in the game but you have a strong feeling about what it is and when you see one coming towards you it doesn't totally register on it doesn't totally register that the thing looks like complete trash because the way it moves the way it looks is just all so off and the entire game has that sort of unsettled off quality that the very crudeness yeah. of the game ends up i think giving it a timelessness that is really tough to recapture i think it's why these like I'm interested to see what like the full remaster of these the original System Shock looks like, but when I consider System Shock 2, I'm like damn, this is one where so much of the horror is of a like, you know what I mean? They were working within constraints, but they made the best choices that were possible within those constraints, and you're probably not going to make better ones even if you lift those constraints. You're not going to create anything that is like the pure undiluted horror of the uh, cyborg nurse with mm -hmm. like by throwing a higher texture resolution at it. You're just not. Yeah. And I think this is also a thing that attracts console people to Silent Hill, which also came out this year. Uh, and I don't, it sounds like none of us actually played that, but when I hear them talk about it, I hear similar kind of ideas of how, you know, the, the abstraction of ideas makes these things stronger as horror than trying to just depict it correctly with uh, graphics that cannot <laughs> I was, I, that. I was on a podcast earlier today talking to a Patrick Klepik, and he went off on this, um, he went off on this riff about the current dominant aesthetics of puppet horror films okay. and about okay. like how like there's kind of this dichotomy of like, do you go in a Chucky direction or do you go in the, the doll doesn't do anything. It is just the idea the doll could do something that exists to completely like d demolish your psyche over the course of the film. And I think Silent Hill is kind of that, right? It's the, we can't actually show you very much. We yeah. just have to trap you within this narrow cone of awareness, and it's going to be narrow because we can't render anything beyond it, but we're going to trap you in this narrow cone of awareness uh, and basically be like, you know, what if, what if Turok had hated you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it's a it's a good time for it. It, it was a, it was a great era for horror, uh, and I think there's a reason that it ended up being kind of tough to recapture that uh, because yeah. it when you have the freedom to make things more directly representative, um, it 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 does yeah. it is tougher to play that psychological game. Yeah, and we also have Resident Evil three this year, and I think Resident Evils two through four are the ones that are generally considered the truly great ones. Uh, so yeah, you could sort of see that in this era. All right, Rowan, so what are the ones out? you have to hit? 
Okay, well, we have to get Heroes of Might and Magic 3, like, in some level of detail, since Jeff has mentioned it several times. <laughs> um, so I think he should give the pitch on that, because we know where we stand on it. I hope you like it. Also, I'm going to have to sign off. <laughs> <laughs> we like it, we just... Well, I, you don't you know, go too far above like. The, th- the thing is, I have to say first that when I did go back to it recently, I got all excited about going through it again. I, I saw some of the limitations, too. I, I really forgot that you could just kind of like giant stack your way through that game, mm-hmm. you know. And so that the in the end, the, there was some limitations to just how, how deep you could really go. Um, but there was something... I think it was the charm of that game is what what I loved. And that was my feeling about basically everything that New World Computing was doing at that time. And and John Van Canaham, the guy behind both, um, uh, well, he was was more the Might and Magic, the RPG series. Yep. Uh, I can't remember the the main uh, designer of the Hero series, and I apologize to him for forgetting his name. But... uh, yeah, it was the strategy spinoff to this, uh, to the long-standing role-playing game series, and um, it just had. Uh, well, there were two parts of it, right? There was the there was the town building aspect of it, where you would you would capture, uh, you would capture towns, and then you were able to build them up as you wanted and recruit troops and and uh, uh, upgrade all the buildings. And then you would take your units out into the world and try to conquer the world. I mean, the the, the setup was was not that profound, but it, in the execution of it, I found um, it was just for me the classic just one more turn game. I always I could never get myself to stop playing that game once I started uh, because it was always the next area to conquer. There was the next thing to see. You know, there were a million little things dotted all over the map that you were trying to get to, you know, enticing you. You would see the the rewards just sitting there waiting for you. Um, so it, to me, it, it, it um, yeah, it just was, um, it was just very charming and, and difficult at the time. I mean. Oh, they're but, still tough, man. Are they? Yeah, the res- the that series has some of the most knife edge balances of resources I think I've ever seen in a strategy game. Rowan, maybe my maybe I've got rose tinted glasses here, but to me, here's my Magic Two, and then more so even here's my Magic Three, is this sense of I can always like I'm always just short of one or two resources that if I just had a little <laughs> more, I could field the army that would let me win my scenario. But instead, I have to go with sort of a scratch force and uh, just trying to get hold of those resources ends up being a process in itself. Yeah, that, that sounds about right. The other thing that I would say is that uh, the Heroes of Might and Magic games, especially starting with two, had extremely strong narrative aspects to them. Yes. You were playing scenarios in a campaign in a level that's closer to like what we think about when we think of real-time strategy games like StarCraft or whatever. Uh, they these games were good for single players as well as I know plenty of people who got into like the multiplayer stuff, but I would I was only ever into the campaign. And part of the reason that I actually uh am not quite so hot on Here's Might Magic Three is that I the campaign is organized in a way that kind of like yeah. is bad for Rowan's brain. 
uh, because Rowan <laughs> wants to start each individual campaign and then move and like do one right. scenario in each. <laughs> but that game is built so that like it gives you these options, but you're only supposed to be doing one at a time. Um, but yeah, I I loved Heroes of Might Magic two quite a bit, um, and three was a bit of a disappointment, but just because of my brain, uh, not because of like an, an inherent aspect of the game itself. Yeah, I think it had like it had multiple campaigns that you right. could, you know, like seven right. all at yeah. once. But when you completed one, only that saved game would like trigger the next ones being open. So if mm. you started like the demon campaign and the human campaign at the same time, then those were actually at odds with one another. Uh, you would still have to do the demon campaign as the humans, and finishing the demon campaign would not unlock the next section of that for the humans. It was uh, it was a bit of a mess and not clear about that. And like every time I've tried to play it again, uh, I've always run into that. Uh, and, but that's just me, probably. Yeah, and the the, the tone and, and and the narrative and the characters it was just unabashedly just really dorky. You know, it was yeah. just super goofy. Um, not like Jagged Edge. It was it was different, but it it but it really um, made no apologies for itself. It was just kind of dumb in a in a good way. Yeah, we're we're throwing every fantasy thing into a blender. I hope you enjoy your elves <laughs> killing your demons and minotaurs and all of that. Right, and then if you played the the Might and Magic uh, role playing games, there was actually like a sci fi element behind that. Yeah, so, the yeah. demons were actually able yeah, right. Yes. Uh, because why not? Yeah. <laughs> so the fantasy strategy game from this year that I ended up actually getting into quite a bit was Age of Wonders, which yeah. is sort of a more serious take on the Heroes of Might and Magic aspect in that it is a narrative-based strategy game with a mix of the um, uh, strategic and tactical considerations significantly more. Another way to put it is that it was more of an updated Master of Magic with a narrative aspect to it. but. Uh, that was just like a whole bunch of fantasy things put together in a world that was serious about it in a way that I really liked because it reminded yeah. me of the Silmarillion. It was very tragic and mythic. The Dark Elves had fallen because of their uh, great love for another one or whatever. Um, it was not just, we have Dark Elves, go have fun. There was there was like an aspect of it through you know the manual and in the narrative that uh, really worked for me. It was probably too big, um, and this is a problem with it. Here's a Might and Magic three also had was th these games just really loved huge maps um so i'm yeah. not sure i ever finished age of wonders one uh or uh here's a might and magic three um but yeah i i genuinely really liked that one a lot did anyone else play it no, i remember I playing it but i remember being overwhelmed by it by by just what you said by just how huge it was and you're right yeah. that that was the case with heroes as well i i think i think that it was being referred to as like a, a spiritual successor to Might and Magic. I mean, I'm sorry, Master of Magic. Yeah. Um, or or far closer in that tone-wise than, than the Heroes series. Yeah, it, it's... I, w I was just describing it in our Discord, actually, but just saying that it's like a serious Heroes or a narrative Master of Magic was what they were going for. And the yeah. music was utterly fantastic. It's one of the best soundtracks I've ever heard. Um, so yeah, that... Uh, then moving on, speaking of things with a very great production values, we should probably talk about Dungeon Keeper 2, mm. because uh, uh, that's a game that a lot of people fucking love, and yeah. it's pretty good. Um, 
<laughs> I didn't know where you were going with that for a second, but I, I uh, it, it's funny. I but sort of fought, and I think Rob has fought with like the the we need a new dungeon keeper people because we're like, yeah, those games were fine, but whatever. I totally uh, agree with this, and I keep playing them. Like, what is it? The series Dungeons is is it is it just Dungeons? Yes. that's kind of in the 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 and and it can't like I I keep playing them, and I'll play like four hours and be like, I'm having fun, I'm having fun, and then I got four hours in, and I'm like, I'm not I'm not actually having fun. It's fine. It's it's okay. It's fine. But it yeah, I have. It, it's one of those games where I don't think I would ever try and certainly go back and play that in particular. Um, but I, part of part of what made Dungeon Keeper and Dungeon Keeper 2 so great is how unique they were in the moment and in how they did like they just there was nothing like it and again yeah. I, I think we talked about it earlier just a great sense of personality and mm-hmm. it was kind of fun it was fun to kind of have these dungeons environments in a, in a 3D space when you actually sit back and think about the game itself and how good was the actual game um it, it, it had sort of this really high and low moments like it, it was very kind of wonky in the way that you know when you were having fun i was when i was having fun i was having a ton of fun but you know a lot of the kind of uh you know being invaded and not being and, and like having to the the constraints in the hand of the developer intentionally creating an environment where it was actually kind of hard to create a dungeon and and kind of build it out and organize it the way you want and you're like oh, i don't i kind of wish there wasn't all these stuff i couldn't get through here and i don't want to i don't want to deal with lava i just want to make a dungeon like it just it it (laughs) it's 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 funny because it it is it is intensely strong in my memory um but it it, when you kind of sit back and look at it as kind of a critical level like there's some real flaws there there's some real real struggles in making that a game that has sustainability in the way we would expect now i mean that that was sort of baked into the concept right so famously it was peter molyneux playing for world playing games being like what if you were the man who created the dungeon (laughs) instead of traversing the dungeon um and then like he's trying to make this as like sort of an anti-rpg and then like he gets kicked out and it basically has this like real-time strategy aspect stapled to it that seems to make it lose a lot of the the personality that it had sort of been pushed out, out as. And so what you have is a, a much more conventional steaming game than the probably impossible to actually make ideal. Mm, yeah. uh, and that's that's sort of been a tension throughout all the separate incarnations of it that we've had. Uh, this is also a really good example of that super dorky 90s humor that like was probably funny at the time but does it really go like i just remember how many bdsm jokes there were because there were you know because so there dungeons. were sirens or whatever yeah yeah. yeah 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 and it was it was sort of that over the top like i wanted to, it so wanted to be like monty python or something in there it's yeah, fine yeah. it was good yeah it was good in the uh, moment uh i think two more of the strategy games um, Imperialism 2 is one that we've done a show in the past mm-hmm. on with Troy. Troy and I are big proponents of it, and I think Rob was in on that too. Um, Imperialism was really interesting because it like advertised itself as the anti-Civ. Like, its ads were literally like, our strategy game's too civilized for you. Uh, but it actually was an economic sim that was a really <laughs> amazing. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, we're... we're... <laughs> We're, we're Imperialism putting... marking itself as the edgy, the, the edgy <laughs> alternative to Civ. Yeah, but what you're actually doing is like 
you're trying to, you know, make the pieces of your economy fit together so that they can, like, grow exponentially. Like, the first two-thirds of the game, they're growing linearly. Then you, like, get that final piece of land that gives you the coal that you need or whatever. Um, and then all of a sudden, it just spikes. Um, and, like, that was a really amazing strategic feeling at the time. There is... Imperialism 2 is odd because it's about the, like, conquest of the New World era. So there's a lot of, like, who's going to be the first one to kill as many natives as possible that makes it a little uncomfortable. Yeah. Always made it a little uncomfortable, but ex increasingly so over time. Uh, but, yeah, the... the I would recommend, if you were interested in that sort of thing, going to whatever podcast we did five years ago on imperialism, too. Um, and speaking of economic things that fit together really well, uh, one of my all-time favorite city builders, Pharaoh, uh, which was one of the peaks of the Impressions city builder era of the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, it is, you know, you play as an Egyptian city builder and, like two things really made this stand out first is that there was a lot of like economic resource trading that you had to do that was increasingly intricate over the course of the game uh that made it so that when you could take that next step when you finally were able to you know build the cobblestones or whatever that would make your people's houses upgrade that felt really good uh, and the second thing is that because it was in egypt it was centered around this idea of building tombs and then pyramids so you weren't just, like, making your city be as good as it could possibly be. You were also, like, trying to build so that you had the economic ability to build bullshit. <laughs> um, and that actually, like, made its scenarios stand out. Because we know how strategy games can be, right? Sometimes the scenarios yeah. don't actually mm -hmm. end. Because yeah. you won them halfway through, and it's just cleaning up the pieces. Pharaoh yep. uh, had a really good model for uh, trying to get around that where uh, you know, you're building a giant fucking pyramid and you need to have the workforce who can just go and do that. Um, does anyone else have thoughts on Pharaoh? I'm really trying to remember this. I feel like I can remember the box. And I'm, it, yep. was basically, it was basically like uh, SimCity, right? In yes. ancient Egypt? Yeah. But it's uh, the big thing about the Impressions games is that they were like focused enough you could see the individual citizens walking around. Yeah. Not controlling and pathing. Would, yes, and so yeah. you would control how far they would walk or what they would walk to because, like, if a fireman would walk by a building, then it was safe from a fire um, for like a certain amount of time. So you needed the firemen to be walking at a reasonable enough time that they would hit every building you had, and you'd never have a fire. Um, that was like the key to the impressions uh, and like the, this era of their stuff with this and Caesar three before and Zeus after was, was when they were at their peak. I'd like to uh, see the, this whole genre make a, a big return. It won't happen, but I would love it if it did. There have been a Ooh, bunch of yeah. interesting city builder type I know there's this cities, year. Right? Yeah. Cities, oh, there there have been. I feel like yeah. there was a very impressions esque one though. Recently. Was that the Donna man? No, that no. No, definitely wasn't it. Um, um, it's nothing ringing. I, I yeah. remember these games, but nothing's ringing a bell. That, I, I, that I feel like but, Troy was super into Donna Man in an impressions kind of way, but maybe not. Some of the Anno games sort of have a flavor, yeah. bit of a flavor yeah. of that. Yeah, they do. Um, and then there's Workers and Resources Soviet Republic, which uh, some of us have been uh, looking yeah. forward to or playing in early access for a while. Uh, and then you have games like 
you know, your RimWorlds and your Oxygen not included, the survival strategy things that have a lot of that kind of impulse to them, the Dwarf Fortress era. Very different it, feeling to me, though, than, than kind they, of they that. Like, yeah. yeah. I, they scratch a similar itch in a lot of True. ways, but mm-hmm. they also will burn your base around you in a way that Pharaoh only <laughs> did, like, half the time. Um, and the last strategy game that I can't actually talk about because I never played it, but a lot of people talk about as the peak of one of the greatest strategy series of all time is SimCity 3000. God, I'm <sighs> sure I played it, but see, you know, see, honest see, to God, Sim- I don't remember. I did play it. 2000, yeah. 2000 yes. the one yeah. that I live with. So 2000 was the peak to me. Yeah, but so there's like a 3000 3, Three thousand added a whole bunch more fiddly stuff, and this is the problem: is that it's like two thousand added like sewers and electricity mm-hmm. and stuff, and then three thousand was like, okay, we're adding everything, and yep. each of them is its own like little layer. So it's like the super duper intricate simulation, and I was just like, nah, I liked two thousand, and it's still perfectly <laughs> fine. So I did not get into three thousand like that. But there are a bunch of people who did, like when when the disaster came out like seven years ago. Uh, people are like, well, I'm just going back to SimCity 3000. I guess that is one of the things in this era, is it becomes increasingly possible to ask whether you could instead of whether you should. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's the, like, this is something Bruce Garrick talks about all the time, right? Which is that um, in the late 90s, the technolo- the boundaries that technology placed on complexity are starting to give way. And it turns out that when it busts it when 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 games can bust out of that dam uh a lot like what a lot of yeah. genre specialists and enthusiasts want is considerably more <laughs> arcane than what most of most generalists uh actually wanted and so you start seeing things that used to be everybody could get could get with uh mm-hmm. start becoming a little bit overwhelming right sim city i mean you know, at the time, I, I I don't know if by three thousand, I can't remember, but but the earlier ones, you know, they had that kind of mainstream. Non gamers knew what SimCity was, and you would see yeah. copies of SimCity in people's houses who there didn't have any other games at, at all. Right, right. They'd have Mist and SimCity. Um, you know, everybody knew what it was. There was something super accessible about it. I think you're right. Like it, maybe by the time of three thousand, it it over. You know, it it just was too much. I, I'm pretty sure that's when I opted out. I think I was I was already um, annoyed by the sewers in 2000. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember spending so much time like trying to find you know where was the you know where was the pipe not connected? Like one you know it's like one fucking pixel <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> but I, I yeah I wonder it, it like I was so psyched for that SimCity remake. Um, and I, yeah, maybe it just shouldn't be done. City Skylines is great. Cities made up for everything that SimCity sort of went uh, went sideways on. So, you know, I don't, it, it's, you know, a, a lot of the, the add-ons haven't really added as much for me, but like the base game, um, yeah, that's, that's sort of my go-to these days on that. Mm. I remember the first time I built a dam, and then I didn't realize the fluid mechanics were all real, and I flooded my entire city into these skylines. And I'm like, "Wow, this is this is a nightmare," but I kind of love it. <laughs> so I think 
we are done with most of the things we want to get into in detail. Um, and I just have a few games to shout out that are not strategy games. First of all, fuck you forever, Chrono Cross. Um, <laughs> yeah. Fantastic music, fantastic graphics, just a ghastly story and game. Just, I'm sorry, Square, you tried real hard. Same with Final Fantasy VIII, which, not as ghastly a game, but definitely a, you tried real hard. and Not quite there. Um, and... Uh, Samba de Amigo is one of my favorite rhythm games of all time. Dreamcast game. You're supposed to use maracas, but it was fun as hell with the controller. It got me into Ricky Martin, which is something everyone <laughs> wants. Um, and yeah, those those are my shout outs from the games we haven't mentioned at all. Uh, and somebody should say something about Smash Brothers uh, that it exists. It exists. I don't. I don't I... I, I I think I remember working in the game store around this time, and I remember everybody was looking for Ogre Battle, but I don't know why. I mean, I, you have it on the list, but that was was that a big deal at the time? Am I remembering that right? I mean, so the N sixty four was terrible for RPGs and strategy games, and Ogre Battle is a weird yeah. hybrid of those. So, like, I could see people who are like desperate to get that fix going in for it. Um, I never actually played it. I barely played yeah, neither, most N sixty four games. Um, oh, Ape Escape is also interesting in that that's like the game that people point to as the game that said you have your dual sticks on your PlayStation controller. Mm. Like, mm -hmm. this is what this game is about. Um, you are using those as your primary method of control. You're no longer just using the D-pad. Um, so that's a fairly big deal historically. Also, the first Tony Hawk Pro Skater, um, which be obviously became a huge deal. Like, I don't remember if I played one, but some of those I played just mind-boggling amount of yeah two was the one that like blew Two's up kind of the one was, yeah uh so with like the adventure fits into a lot of what we said about games that tried to go 3d and some of that was really interesting and good and some of it was disastrous and sonic adventure like happily cleaved itself in many mm -hmm. different ways in order to yeah. do that i i got fixated on the song uh samba de amiga uh maracas I remember, I remember I bought the Dreamcast at launch and I wanted those maracas so badly, but I just felt like, <laughs> you know, why buying maracas for what, like how many games are going to actually use maracas? You know? <laughs> but my, what I'm wondering now is like, do you still have them and are they actual like maracas? Can you use them in a non-digital way? I don't know if they're actual maracas. They are like maracas shaped. I never had right. them. Um, it got re-released for the Wii, and you were able to use the Wii controllers, which seemed like a good idea, except you couldn't actually use them like maracas. You had to shake them in a totally different way, which was hilariously awful. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's that's the main way. I don't think there were actually all that many of them in America. They were like collector's items, basically, from release uh, anyway. What? Oh, that was an earthquake. Uh, I'm sorry. What? So, yeah. uh, well, we just had an earthquake. Oh, uh, so yeah, that, that yeah. seems like a good time to wind up. <laughs> yep. this. Kind of dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> All right. This year has awards for everybody except for Ultima. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone turned in their best everybody. work. <laughs> except for except Ultima. Ultima. Aww. Ultima Nine. I. That's the game that got me. Uh, literally, physically banned from Origins offices. I was not allowed to visit <laughs> because I wrote such a, a scathing uh, open letter to Lord British um, that uh, that Aww. his publicist would not allow me to visit ever again. 
I thought it was a good trade-off. It was worth writing. You that kicked column. his ass all the way in the space. Because <laughs> I got a lot off my chest in that one. Yeah. I, I recall that being the first, Ultima 9 being the first game that that I remember that shipped truly broken. Yes. Where you you couldn't play it. And I was just, I mean, we see it all the time now, unfortunately. Or, um, but of course, patching is so much easier now than it was back then. Mm-hmm. Um, I just was dumbfounded that, uh, and I think what particularly pissed me off about Ultima 9 was that the box, like I, I got like the giant deluxe box. And, oh, uh, wow. Oh, and wow. Was, I was all in, and there was like a scroll on like part, like fake parchment paper from Lord British, like, congratulating you on your on your purchase and, you know, welcome back to the kingdom. You know, this whole fucking flowery letter congratulating you on the, the wisdom of your purchase. And then you, like, you couldn't play the game. So I the open letter I wrote, I wrote in that, like, bogus Elizabethan language, you know, basically saying, like, you know, maybe try finishing your game first next time. You know, I... But I just remember that was, you know, it was truly broken, and I think that was something that was seemed new to me at the time. I, that, that's my recollection. I can't ever remember being that mad at a game being that broken. Yeah. Uh, Fair. A thing I will just cite here really quickly, because our discussion put me in mind of it. Uh, our friend Nicole Clark uh, was on the show for the Oxygen Not Included show. She wrote a retrospective over at Vice uh, a couple months back about humongous games, edutainment games, oh, Pot, Pot, Freddy yeah. Fish. Oh my god, yes! yes. Freddy Fish, yes. I love those games. People should check it out and read it, but the inter- the reason I bring it up here is because it's around this period where they start to hit the wall, too. And they're very clear about what went wrong, which is that the late 90s, this transition to 3D, increasing resolutions, um, really like everything post-Windows 95, the expense, the cost of art for games, even simpler ones like the, you know, sort of the, the, the animated style that a lot of like humongous uh, games were going for, all of it begins to ramp up really, really quickly. And I, I do think like looking at this list and talking about some of the things we encountered, mm-hmm. right? Like games being completely freaking broken uh, in, in ways we hadn't really experienced before. Um, like in the backdrop of this year, it, I do get the sense there's a lot of studios and a lot of producers trying to figure out how the hell are we going to make games? in 2000 2001 right like you're like the math is becoming really tough um and corners are gonna have to be cut and i i I do think that's a pressure that probably can't be under uh that probably shouldn't be underrated uh in this period and 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 something that sort of gives it uh gives gives some of the shape to the failures this era experienced uh, and maybe explains why we don't see this kind of vitality continue onwards you definitely see even just from 2000 that the, the variety of great games drops pretty significantly. And by, you know, 2003 or so, uh, it's, you know, half the size of the, the list that I'm making. Well, we just don't have the crazy console war. It doesn't feel like, like, I don't know. It, I know the Dreamcast is there, but like it. <clears throat> I mean, the PlayStation is doing its very specific thing. Right. and. 
the N64 is doing is a very specific thing. Both of these are really popular, but they're not like in the same area in the way that PlayStation and Xbox are. Yeah. Like PlayStation and Xbox are competing for exactly the same people in exactly the same ways and have been for like 15 years. But yeah. at this point, that's not what's happening here. I'll tell you what I like about now as opposed to back then is that I feel like I know myself personally, and most people I know are now totally platform agnostic. Um, and mm -hmm. at the time, it really it was more like you had to choose sides. Like I was totally just a, a PC gamer at that time. I mean, yeah, yeah I yep. worked on the magazine, so but but I you know I was dismissive of things on the console at the time. And of course, I've spent years in, in you know since going back and playing a lot of the stuff that I missed. But like today, without thinking about it at all, I I, I played three games. I played. Link's Awakening, Ghost Recon on the PS4, and then uh, WoW Classic. So I played a PC game, a PS4 game, and a Switch game mm. without thinking about it at all. And I, I feel like a lot of us are just that way now, where it's just games, and we don't have to go through some nonsense of picking a side and sticking to it and dissing the other one. Except for Epic Store versus Steam, which is the... I knew it! I knew it! Yeah. <laughs> I knew somebody yes, would that's it. the new one. <laughs> that's the new one. Oh, man. I think to wrap it up, maybe we could just say our favorites. That sound good? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. All right, Jeff. Well, I think I've said mine. It would be, uh, I think, System Shock 2, uh, EverQuest, Heroes of Might, Magic 3, and the three that really stand out to me. Sean. Yeah, I I probably would have to at the, certainly that year uh I would have put EverQuest at the top. Um certainly the one I I played the most. Um Counter-Strike we didn't talk a lot about, but I played yeah. a lot. Counter-Strike was Counter-Strike taught me a lot about myself. I'll just put it that way. What <laughs> 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 the fuck does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> it means it means i've it's toxic it, yeah it, it's super toxic yeah it just made it like i played it for years and realized oh this game makes me a bad person uh, when i play it I'm, I'm awful i'm the worst um but I, I i certainly loved it at the time and i mean i have to i do have to put alpha centauri up there i know i i, I totally get where everybody and, and system shock too um those are my favorite games of that year rob Oh yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> no, uh the the things I'm taking from this year, uh at all costs. I'm taking System Shock two, I'm taking Alpha Centauri, I'm taking Free Space Two. Um three really pessimistic uh sort of <laughs> sort, sort of hopeless <laughs> games. Uh pointing pointing the way into the future that hadn't happened yet. Um, I can't believe none of you said Jagged Alliance 2, but that is by far my favorite game of this year. Uh, it's the one that seemed to like actually have the ambitions and realize those ambitions, where a lot of those, a lot of these other ones are like somewhere in between that. Um, if we're picking three, then I would probably also go with Championship Manager 3 and either Torment or Pharaoh. Torment is a game that I kind of go back and forth on loving or just respecting but there is more than enough love there that it's it's it should be in my top three it's it's a big year to not i mean that's how big the year was if if torment doesn't end up even my top of that year or top yeah. three or four 
Like, <laughs> that was a crazy year. Well, you can always, like, tweak your list depending on who you're hanging out with and who you want to think, <laughs> mm -hmm. who you want to view you as a cool and savvy person. Uh, you can always tweet, you can always read the room uh, when it comes to best of 1999 and uh, find some kind of common ground. Um, I mean, I've I've made my case for being a Fallout person above a, an Infinity Engine person before, mm -hmm. so there's only so far I can go. <laughs> All right, well, that will do it for this week. We'll be back next week with more strategy discussion. Uh, this episode is produced by Keith Carberry through Moves Ahead as host on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Finally, Three Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. You can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. That also has further information about our super secret Discord server where we occasionally talk about strategy games anyway we'll be back next week with another episode of three moves ahead until then for rowan for jeff for sean this is rob zachney saying good night